Ma'am, I have an emergency at 137 Decatur Drive. 137 Decatur, what's going on? I had a friend of mine in my house. He come at me. He was striking me. I had to shoot him. He is down. Okay, you need to send some ambulance right now. Yes, yes, ma'am. How, how old is he? He's 35, I believe. Where did you shoot him? I'm, I'm not really sure. He come at me, he hit me in the face, and I shot him in the chest two times. Okay, is he breathing? Right now he's breathing. Right now he's breathing. Okay. Are you okay? Right now he's breathing. 137 Decatur Drive, Somerville, 29486. Your name is, please. Don't hang up. Okay, I'm not. Okay, you shot him. What kind of gun do you have? I have a 9mm Smith & Wesson. It was in my back pocket. We have been getting along all night. He come at me. He hit me in the face. He tried to keep hitting me. I grabbed the gun and I shot him twice in the chest to get him away from me. He's laying on my floor right now. And what is your name, sir? My name is Wade Williamson. William, what was it? Wade Williamson. Okay. Okay, is that him I can hear? Yes. Okay. We were fine. We were okay. We were together here talking, and he started punching me. He punched me in the face. I grabbed the gun, and I shot him. Have you got somebody on the way? Liam, Liam, are you okay? Can you hear me? Liam, Liam, can you hear me? Liam, 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 can you hear me? Liam. I shot him two times in the chest. He come after me. He was trying to hear me. He was trying to hurt me. I didn't have any choice but to shoot him. Okay. Here we have EMS and first responders and the police coming, okay? Okay. But don't hang up with me, though, okay? What is okay. his name? His name is Liam Vernon, L-I-A-M-V-E-R-N-O-N. I don't know what I need to do to help keep him alive. He's got two bullet wounds, one to the chest, one to the stomach. Can you get a clean towel and... Apply pressure. A clean towel? Yeah. Yes, ma'am, I can. I'm sorry, I did not want to do this shit. He come after me, God damn it. Is there anybody else in the house? No, ma'am, it's just me and him. We've been here for a couple of hours. How long ago did you just shoot him? Yes, I just did it. Okay. Okay, where is the gun right now? It's 
sitting on the counter. Okay, can you can you secure the gun so the officers get yes. there? Yes, ma'am, it's secured. It's unloaded. It's unloaded. When the officers get here, it's unloaded. Okay, so the gun's going to be unloaded on the counter? The gun is unloaded when they get here. Okay, when the officers get there, they're going to need you to come outside with your hands up, okay? Huh? I said when the officers get there, they're going to need you to come out with your hands up, okay? Okay, that's fine. When we're talking, he come after me. I had no choice. He hit me in the face. He punched me. I grabbed the gun. I shot twice, and then I stopped. Okay, what's he doing right now? Is he still breathing okay? Right now, he's, he's not breathing. You said he's not breathing? He doesn't look like it. His... his, his, his He's not breathing up and down. Okay, can you get your face close to his and see if he is breathing? See if you can see him. Um, I'm right here in front of him. He's making noises. He's making noises. He is still talking? No, he's not talking. He's just making noises. Liam, Liam, can you hear me, Liam? Liam, can you hear me? Liam, can you hear me? Liam, 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 can you hear me, Liam? He's making noises, but he's not responsive. Okay. I don't know what to do. Okay, they're coming. Okay. I mean, I, I just I, I didn't know what to do. He'd come at me. He was fucking hitting me. I shot him. I don't know what the fuck to do. Yes, sir. Well, you did the right thing by calling 911. All right. I mean, hell, I didn't know what to do. Christ. Okay, we do have an officer in the area, so just just hang tight, okay? They're coming. Well, I don't fucking come. I don't, I don't know. We were fucking talking. He fucking come at me. I didn't have any choice. I didn't have any fucking choice. He hit me in his jaw. What the fuck, man? Okay, you still holding pressure? Yeah. Uh, yes. His pressure okay. down. He's not making any noise now. He was in the beginning, but he's not now. You said he's doing what? He's not doing nothing. Okay, so you said, has he stopped breathing? I don't know. He's making noises, but he ain't, I mean, his chest ain't going up and down. Okay. So he is still making noise. I'm going to open the door for the cops. I'm going to open the door for the cops. Okay, make sure you're The front door is open. Okay. They can come on in. You tell them they can come on in. I, I, I didn't want to do this. Is the front door open or just unlocked? The front door is open. They can just come okay. right in. Are you still breathing? He fucking he come at me, man. I don't know what the fuck, man. He come at me. He fucking hit me. We've been here talking. We've been here cool. 
Liam, can you hear me? Liam, 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 can you hear me? Liam, Liam. Sir, can you hear me? Liam. Yeah, I can hear you, yeah. Okay, our officer is there. Can you step outside with your hands up? Yes, ma'am, I can step outside. Okay, go ahead and do that. Just put the phone down. All right. Oh, I mean, my phone's in my ear, but I'll step outside with my hands okay. up. All right, go ahead. <laughs> I'm outside with my hands up. He's in the kitchen. He's in the kitchen. All right. All right. Well, I, I'm on the phone. Just better. He's telling me to let my phone down. I'm let my phone down, okay? All right, viewers. We have got one of the most mesmerizing speakers I've seen in a long time. He's been on my buddy Matt Cox's channel. Shout out to him. He's been on Danny's channel, Concrete. And, you know, we ask people to come at us with long stories that get viewers gripped. This is one hell of a long story. It's a couple of hours. And Wade really went through it. And we're going to set the table slowly on this one because you'll see why. It involves Wade getting charged with a murder. I'm not going to tell you the outcome of what happens. But it is a very... It's something that I believe if someone does something to you and puts you in a certain position, you should be allowed to act the way Wade did. But they came at him with the full force of the legal system. They tried to put him away. And we're going to get to all that. But a huge thank you for coming on, man. Hey, it's a pleasure to be here, my brother. I've been a big fan of yours for quite a while. And when I first got into podcast, I stumbled upon your story. And so to be here on your platform, man, it's an honor. Oh, cheers. And shout out to Joey Torres as well. I think you had a word with you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We've we've talked a few times. We're, we're going to do a show together, man. What a character, dude. I mean, I watched your six-hour-long show that you had with him, including the one with Michael. And, man, that dude's got stories. And the thing about him is he's got all the proof to back up everything he says. I know, you know, doing this, sometimes it's hard to vet what people say, but that dude's got the proof. And he's quite a polarizing character. Yeah, and the viewers watching this, they've heard the emergency call in the trailer at the beginning of this video. But we're going to go way back first, Wade. What was it like for you before all this happened? I mean, what was it like growing up? I worked uh, um, in a steel in the steel industry. I was a welder. Um, I mean, I had a normal childhood, man, all things considered. You know, uh, both both parents were present. I grew up in a town called Darlington, South Carolina, which was a... Uh, not really known for much. They had a racetrack. Uh, if any of your viewers ever follow NASCAR, they have a NASCAR track there, but that's about it. I mean, it's a very small town. And, you know, I went to high school there, went to college there. I got a certificate in welding. And that was my plan to get in somewhere doing that. And, you know, I met this, uh, I was out at a bar one night. I was kind of starting to, you know, get into the party scene a little bit. I'd graduated college, making a little money. I got my first welding job. And, you know, we were uh, we were at this party one night at a uh, club and I seen this girl and I mean, just fucking blew me away. I mean, I was just like, geez, who is this? And I knew I'd never seen her before. I've been going to this place for months and never seen her before. And the weird thing about it is a classmate of mine from high school. You know, I was talking with her and I seen her speaking with her earlier in the evening. And I was like, man, who is that girl you was talking to? And she's like, well, that's my friend Felicia. So I met her uh, last week. I was like, is she from here? I'm like, I've never met her. I was like, she's gorgeous. And she's like, I'll introduce you. 
So she went up and introduced me. And the funny thing is they only met because the week prior, uh, my wife had come out there with one of her friends and that girl forgot her wallet. And so she didn't have her ID and they were having issues trying to get in outside. So she just happened to strike up a conversation with that classmate of mine. So that was the extent of their relationship. So it's kind of all played a part and, you know, just a chance meeting and we exchanged phone numbers and talked a little bit and, you know, went on a few dates and that kind of led into an engagement. And then, you know, we're still together to this day after, after all of this that we'll get into this evening, but I continued to stay uh, in Darlington. Um, I got on with a pretty good steel company. It was called a, Newcore Steel, and it's one of the bigger steel companies in the world. And it was about a two-hour commute that I had uh, driving back and forth. And I'd done that for about seven years. And man, I was just—I done it with a couple other buddies, and it just wore you out driving that far because we were working ten-hour shifts, sometimes twelve-hour shifts, and it was—it was a lot. And so I wound up moving to the Charleston area, Charleston, South Carolina. And, you know, at that point, man, everything was going good. Like, you know, we had a son together. She had a daughter when we first met whom, you know, I love. She's just like my daughter. She actually just moved to Seattle here recently to start her career out there. You know, we had a son. We come down here. He was probably, I want to say maybe around two. And I mean, you know, at, for all intents and purposes at that time, everything was good. You know, we were riding high. I was making good money with a new job, got a nice house. We were lucky enough to move here during the recession. So we got a house at a really good deal because everything was bottoming out. And so I come in and my income and everything was kind of accustomed to what everybody was experiencing as a hard time. But I come in where to me it was actually good. So like I said, everything was going great. Just, you know, I couldn't really ask for much better. And, you know, about, I'd say five years go by, I mean, we're still going good. And there was a concert that came about in uh, Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Um, it was kind of their version of like a Woodstock type thing, but it was all country music. It was called the Carolina Country Music Fest. And so like, all right, we're going to go down here and check this thing out. It was the first one they ever did. It was like four days, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, all just basically nonstop partying and drinking. So we get set up and I'm going down there Thursday night and I leave work, shoot straight down there. I have my bags packed, get down there, take a shower. And, you know, the party kind of began. My wife came down on Friday because she had to work Friday. So she came down Friday evening and we had a great time. I mean, it was just, you know, we had a lot of friends of ours there. And I'd say like on Saturday, I had a friend of mine come down and he met us down there who was a, a paramedic. And he looked at me, he's like, man, he said, you look terrible. And I was like, well, I ain't really had a lot of sleep, man. We've been going at it pretty hard. And he's like, do you want an IV? And I said, yeah, I'll take an IV. So he gives me an IV. And I mean, dude, I don't know if you ever have one of those, but it just pops you right back to life. <laughs> I mean, you're ready to go. So it was like I took a 12-hour nap. And I mean, I was rested. So it was like, all right, we're rocking on now. And, you know, went through the weekend. And I get up Monday morning after the last day. I come back home. I'm supposed to go to work Tuesday morning. Now, mind you, I haven't been home all weekend. You know, I've been gone at, at the beach. So when I get back, I'm trying to get everything straight, you know, get everything cleaned up, set for my week to go back to work. Well, the next morning, I, I left for work about 5 a.m. We had to be there at 6. And I just, body gave out. I was driving, nodded off. And, 
you know how when you run off the road, you hear those little noises like when your tire makes contact with the rib. And I heard that, and I woke up. And as soon as I woke up, I hit something. I didn't know what it was, and I knew I was airborne. Like, I could just tell I wasn't on the road. And then when the car finally hit, I mean, it was bam, 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 flip after flip. I didn't think it was ever going to stop. And I was just like, at that point, I didn't even know where I was at or where I could be because it was just flipping what seemed like forever. And the last thing I seen, I looked out the window and I seen another car. It was a pickup truck. And I landed on top of the pickup truck. Now, I wasn't sure if this truck was on the road because if it's on the road, there's somebody in it. I probably just killed somebody, you know, and I'm I'm just like trying to make sure first, like make sure I'm not hurt because I'm literally upside down on this car and I have my seatbelt on, which is probably the only reason why we're having this conversation. And I'm trying to brace myself to where when I undo my seatbelt, I don't fall down on my head and doing that. I guess it wiggled the car a little bit. So it falls off. Now it's on its passenger door straight up. So now I'm hanging like this. And so I undo the seatbelt, I climb out, the, uh, the, I had tent on all my windows, so the windows were busted, but they didn't shatter on me, thank goodness. And I was able to roll them down, and I climbed out, and I seen like the front tire was completely missing. I'm kind of like looking around to get my bearings, and this car comes creeping by. And he rolls down his window, he's like, are you all right? And I said, I think so. And he said, you need me to call the ambulance? And I said, yeah, I guess so, just to be on the safe side. And he said, do you need me to stay? He's like, I don't really want to stay. And I was like, no, you ain't got to stay. I don't know if he'd been drinking or coming home partying himself. So he drove off and I climb up and I'm kind of sitting on my driver's side door debating on where I need to hop down. Cause I was like, I don't want to live through this crash and then hop down and then the car rolled on me. And so I figured out the best place to hop down. I walked up to the house and this house was very distinctive. It was like the whole house was like a roof and it come down almost to, you know, about chest level. And I remember knocking on the door and at that point, this is probably like 520 or so. And the guy opens the door and he's like, you know, yeah. And I'm like, man, I said, I had an accident out here. I said, I landed on your pickup truck. And he looks out the door and just kind of shakes his head. And he's like, man, that's my wife's truck. He's like, she's had that thing since high school. And I'm like, I'm, I'm sorry, brother. Like, you know, I didn't do it on purpose. I promise you that. And he was like, all right. And he just shut the door. Like, he didn't ask me if I was okay, need a drink of water, nothing. He just shut the door. And so I go back out to the car, and my phone was actually in my pocket. I thought it was sitting in, like, my cup holder, so I was trying to find it, and then I realized my phone was in my pocket. So I called my wife, let her know I was in an accident, told her where I was at. I called my boss that morning, let him know, like, hey, I just flipped my car, I won't be in. And not long after that, the ambulance showed up. And I'm sitting on like the stump over by the car. They come up to the car. They kick the windshield in. And I was kind of looking like, what the hell are they doing? And they kick the windshield in and they're looking in the car. And there's like, you know, where's the driver? I guess they thought it was my house. And I was just, I was like, I said, I am the driver. And they said, you're the driver? I was like, yeah. I said, do you have anybody with you? I was like, no, not that I know of. I was like, it was just me. So they immediately slapped me on this board. Right. And they got me like taped up. They put the neck brace on me. They're putting tape around my head, around my chin. I'm just like, to me at this point, it was a little unnecessary because I wasn't at least visibly hurt and I didn't feel bad either. And so by about this time, my wife comes pulling up. So she's seeing me strapped to this board with a neck brace on 
And it's just like, to her, it's like really bad. She thinks I'm really messed up. And I just told her, I'm like, look, I'm fine. I was like, I don't even know really why they're doing this, but I guess just follow me to the hospital. We go to the hospital and um, everything checks out fine. The doctor comes back and he's like, uh, you know, I don't know what God you pray to or what your religion is. He said, but uh, keep doing it because you're, you're fine. I, I don't see anything wrong with you. And I'm like, all right, well, 10 four and we leave. I go back to where the car was sitting at the uh, tow yard and I walk up to try to get a few things out of it. Cause I didn't get anything out of it that morning. And the guy at the tow yard was like, you know, where's the, uh, where's the driver? I said, I am the driver. He's like, man, he's like, I figured you were dead. He was like, we found your front tire like 30 yards down the road. He's like, it wasn't even near the car. We thought somebody had stolen. He's like, cause we didn't even see it anywhere. And he said, we found it down the road in a ditch. And I was like, well, no, I said, it's, it's me. And for the most part, I did come out of that relatively unscathed. I did have some back issues and that kind of ties into this whole story, which is why it's kind of part of it, a stepping stone, if you will. I had messed up my L4, L5 and S1 disc in my back. And still to this day, I'm having issues with it. Um, it flares up from time to time, depending on what I do. I'd say about a month ago, I bent down just to put on my shoes and it seized up on me. And I was kind of on the shelf for like three or four days. So that was uh, really hindering me. And I wound up going back to work. And the sad part about it at this point, when I when I went out for this wreck, I didn't lose my job at the company, but I lost the position I held. So I had to change positions in this company, which I hated because I really loved the guys I was working with. I loved the crew I was on. I loved the shift. I mean, I really, you know, it was really kind of tailor made for me. The other one I just didn't really care for. It was it wasn't the type of job that I wanted. It was still with that company. I was still making good money, but it just wasn't the same. And so that was kind of like the first thing that was really starting to weigh on me it was like, damn, I went out for this wreck. You know, job area isn't exactly what I want. And so that was kind of, I guess, if you will, the first domino that, that started to fall. And then, as you know, when you have issues with your job, a lot of times that follows you home to your home life. And you know, it can start to, you know, affect things there. The money wasn't exactly the same because when I, the job that I had before, I was like a pay grade five. This one was like a pay grade one. So the money's not the same either. And that's kind of another thing that's weighing on you. As a man, you know, you have that feeling you need to be able to provide and, and do everything for the family. So that's another thing that kind of led to it. So that leads, as you know, to, to having a drink and then sometimes more than a drink. And it, it's a, like a slowly progression of, of depression and just all the things that you run into when this kind of thing happens. And so the, obviously that leads to, to fights and what have you with the marriage. And I'd say what really set it over was that was about 2015. You fast forward to 2017, we're in this community. A lot of us are friends and I meet this couple that's literally down the street from me, about nine houses down from where I'm at. All things considered seeming like the the perfect where you would want your life to be if you were, you know, a man in your late thirties, early forties, he had a wife, had a son, had a daughter, had a good job off on Fridays, a Mercedes, a golf cart, a Harley, a boat, you know, all the, the nice things that you would say, Hey, put me at this point in my life. And I want all this. Seemingly he had it. Great guy. When we got together, always was one to bring food, bring beer, you know, whatever the case, we would hang out by the community pool. Um, just, a, just a great guy. 
And we had this little tradition on Fridays. We would meet at this Mexican restaurant in the neighborhood, hang out, and then usually go to one person's house and just kind of sit around in the garage, listen to music, drink beer, shoot the shit, and hang out. So we did that. We hung out at the Mexican restaurant. We go to another house, hanging out there a little bit. And uh, my wife calls me. She's actually at another friend of ours house about five houses down. So it's like our house, the house she was at, and then the other couple's house. So I leave there. I tell them, bye, I'm going over to where my wife's at. You know, tell everybody I'll see them tomorrow, next day or whatever at the pool. I go to where they're at. And we're all sitting around their house. It's probably 20 minutes later. And you start to hear this scream. And you could tell it wasn't a child or anything like that. It wasn't um, it wasn't in kids playing because we have that. There's a lot of kids in the neighborhood. And I was like, turn the radio down for a minute. And it was really weird because I remember distinctly there was a certain song. It was The Hurt uh, by Johnny Cash. You know, Nine Inch Nails sung it first. Then he'd done a rendition of it. And it was just weird because you was hearing that screaming over that song. And I still like anytime I hear that song, I automatically flash back to that. And so we kind of go outside and just instinct, we started running down, you know, to that area of the neighborhood. And there was a cop, uh, not a cop, but a car sitting there and had his lights on. And we seen this woman just like rolling around in the grass. So my first thought was there was like a domestic issue in this car. You know, maybe they got in a fight. Maybe somebody got hit or whatever. I went up to the woman in the ground. My buddy immediately went into their house. Now, he knew them as well. I don't know what possessed him to go straight into the house, but he did. He didn't ask no questions. He just went to the house. I went to the woman. Well, when I finally got her to stop rolling over, it was the lady that I had just left 20 minutes before this at the house. She's already in her pajamas, basically, you know, night clothes. She's fixing to go to bed. And she's just still screaming. And I'm asking, I'm like, what is wrong? And she said, he did it. He did it. He shot himself. And I was like, who? And she said, Chris, it was her husband. And so I kind of turned to the house and I got up and I ran into the house and my buddy had already come in there. He had gotten to, you know, his head area. He had took off his shirt, wrapped it around his head. And when I come in, his, his kitchen's like a straight in the front door, open living room, open kitchen, all in the same area. And I see some legs like laying out in front of the walkway. And as I turned the corner, Sean, I'm telling you, that was the worst thing I'd ever seen in my life. He already had the shirt around his head. So it hid some of the injuries, but he was coughing and coughing up blood. And I mean, it it was pouring out of every area in his head, nose, mouth. It was like somebody turned a faucet on at the sink. And it was just, I almost lost it, like, right there. I, you know, I almost threw up, almost got sick. And I'm trying to, like, contain myself and turn my head. And I'm like, what do you need me to do? And he's like, call 911. So I have my phone. I go outside. By this time, my wife and his wife are getting down there because we sprinted there. And I just tell him, I'm like, don't go in there. I was like, call 911 because I was look, searching for my phone. I didn't have it. We left them on the table because we left out in a panic. So they had to run back to the house to get the phones to call 911. We're sitting there. By this time, people are starting to come outside because it wasn't super late. It was probably maybe like 11 o'clock. And people are starting to circle around. We're waiting on the ambulance. It seemed like it took it forever to get there. Probably wasn't that long in retrospect. But when you're seeing that kind of shit going on in front of you, it's just, you know, the time just seems like it takes forever. And, I mean, he was still alive, but I don't think there was ever a chance of, him making a recovery. It was just the, the bodily functions kind of slowly running out and the ambulance got there. They took him away 
And it blew my mind. I was like, man, you know, this, this guy's got everything that you would want at this point in life, you know, and as slowly I started learning that there was issues with depression. Um, I guess at some point he was a little heavier than he was. He went on a diet. He lost a lot of weight. So he had some, some sagging skin and to kind of take care of that, he got on a mixture of steroids to start bulking up to kind of take care of some of that loose skin that led to some other prescription pills. Plus he was drinking and it was just a deadly concoction, real similar to the concoction we're going to get into that the individual had that, you know, I had my dealings with here. And I was just like, man, you know, is that what it comes to? You know, do you get that far down to where that's your answer? And I never, never at that point, suicide even entered my mind for my situation. But I'm just like, how bad does it really have to get for someone to choose that? And it just, it really weighed heavy on me, man. And, and it, it made me think, well, that's not what I want to do, but I don't want to get to that point. And I made the decision that I thought at that point, it was best if me and my wife split up because it was constant arguing. It was constant bickering back and forth. And I thought to myself, I'm not going to be the guy that gets that far deep into depression, that that's what I want to do, that that's my answer to escape, you know, the problems that I have. So that led to a split between her and I, and it was, it was amicable. I mean, she understood why, obviously she wasn't happy about it. Um, and I wasn't happy about it, but that at the time that was my only, I guess, resolution to, to quit this arguing, to quit this bickering best case scenario. I was thinking maybe we spend a little time apart, kind of both get our bearings and then maybe we could reconcile, but we wound up splitting up. Uh, I moved to a house in the neighborhood, uh, it's probably like 15 houses around the corner. So a two or three minute drive, it worked out good because I could still come back, see my kids hang out. Um, I told her I was going to still pay all the bills and everything, but the deal we cut was, I said, if you start seeing someone, then I'm going to move back. Like, I don't want to pay the bills here and another guy, you know, come into the house and be sitting on my couch watching TV, you know? And, uh, and I mean, I even said it in a joking way and she joked back and she understood this was a real amicable split. And I want to, again, emphasize that it was my idea. It was not her idea. And I told her if she wanted to see someone, I had no problems with it. We were filing for divorce, um, you know, and I, it wasn't a, a nasty one. Like we were going to get into a nasty court battle. And she had my blessing. If she wanted to go see someone else, she could. Um, I was seeing other people, too, during this break. Not right off, but a little bit after. Um, but nothing, nothing serious. And I would say around November, um, well, October, she told me that she had met someone. Uh, she wasn't sure where it was going to go, but she had met someone and went on a few dates. And then towards the end of October, it was Halloween. It was the last Halloween that they spent in the house at that time. Um, we took my son around the neighborhood trick-or-treating, and that was the last night she stayed in the house. She said they were going to get together and they were going to move into a house also in the neighborhood, but a couple of subdivisions back. And so I helped her move like it. It still wasn't a hateful like relationship. You know, we weren't the best of friends at this point in time, obviously. But, you know, I still loved her. There was still love there. We had a kid together and I moved her in that house and that was it. And we really didn't talk for, I'd say, around three months from that was first of November. We didn't really talk to around December. I mean, it was kind of you do your thing. I do mine. Now, the guy that she met. I never knew him. 
he was not from here. It's not somebody that I had had a relationship with prior. I'd never heard of the man. She had said he was former military. Um, you know, he had moved down here to get away from wherever he had going on at the time. So I didn't know anything about this guy. I uh, hadn't a clue. And we start talking kind of around mid-December. We're trying to figure out what we're going to do around the holidays because this is kind of the first Christmas with us being split. And we were trying to figure out how to make it easy for the kids. And, you know, it was just kind of like small talk. I'm like, so how's your, your married life going down there? You know, I'm, I'm breaking her balls is what I'm doing. And she's like, eh, she's like, well, it started out good. And it's, you know, not really going too good. And I said, well, that's, you're not the easiest person to live with, you know? And so she's firing back at me. You're not easy to live with either. And, you know, it just kind of, you could tell at that point, there was still like a little spark left, you know, in the, in the relationship. And we figured out what we were going to do for Christmas. We actually spent Christmas together uh, at her mother's and it's that it kind of, at that point started a progression of us talking a little more. And it was almost like in a weird way, we kind of started flirting and then dating all over again, even though we had took a break and cause we both knew it was there. But I think at the same time, neither one of us were sure if we wanted to go back, we just knew we still had love for each other. And so I was still seeing other people. She was obviously, it was a, a strained relationship, but she was still seeing that guy. And there was a point to where she told him that she, he did have to leave. Uh, so he left. He actually went back home from what I understand. Uh, didn't stay very long. He probably stayed there about a month. And then he came back. When he came back, he was staying at some sort of government assisted housing that he had. So he wasn't actually living at that residence. I mean, he would visit, he would stay over there sometime, but his residence was a, a VA housing that he had. And it just kind of went like that for a while. And it kind of got to a point, I'm like, look, you know, if we're going to continue to see each other, if we're going to get back together, then we need to do it. We need to do it right. And the agreement that we kind of made was we we're going to go ahead and get the divorce and finalize it, be done get back together, work on it. If it looked like something we were going to, you know, continue, we could get remarried or just, you know, run it, run its course. But if it looked like something we weren't going to be able to work out, then we could both kind of go our own ways. And we had no strings attached at that point. We're both divorced. And we had even come up with an agreement of what I was going to give her out of my retirement plan. Um, so everything was set in stone and we were going to go ahead and do that anyway. I'm like, look, I'm going to still give you what we had It'll be yours. That way, if we decide, yeah, we can't make this work, we don't have to start this whole process all over again. And that was kind of what we agreed on. And it was April, uh, which was spring break here. We went to her mom, her mom's house, uh, stayed the weekend with them, hung out, kind of broke the news to everybody. Hey, we're going to, you know, give this another go. We're going to give it another run, which they were happy about. Um, you know, they knew a lot of what had happened and transpired over the last few years. So they were excited that we were going to give this another run. We left there, went to church Easter Sunday, left there, went to the beach, stayed a couple of days, had a wonderful time. You could tell that there was definitely still something to, to salvage. And we get back and the plan is I'm like, all right, look, I'll tell the, the few girls that I'm seeing, look, I'm getting back with my wife, cut off. You tell him you're going to get back with me, cut it off. Obviously, my the people that I was talking to at the time could have cared less. <laughs> They're like, okay, whatever. Him, not so much. It was a little bit of an issue. And she knew it was going to be an issue. 
And we got back on a Thursday. They stayed at my house Thursday night. The plan was for her to tell him Friday. And I was like, once you tell him, I'll help you move and get everything back, you know, over to our house. Saturday morning, my kid had a soccer game. So when we meet at the soccer game, uh, I was like, I said, well, how do you take it? And she's like, I didn't get a chance to tell him. He came in, said he wasn't feeling good. He took something, went straight to bed. She's like, I'm going to tell him this evening. I'm like, okay. So she's, I don't know what time she's going to do it. I'm just kind of waiting in case she needs me. I didn't want to interject because I didn't know if she was going to tell him specifically she was coming back to me or what. So I knew I didn't want him getting pissed off coming over to where I was at. So I was just kind of staying out of it, letting her fill me in on the details as they happen. And I'd say probably about middle of the day, she come by the house and she was like, I told him he got pissed and he left, but she said, I know he's not going for good because he left his dog. He had a service dog. And she said, uh, he left his dog there. So I know he's got to come back. And she said he had gotten pretty like, not necessarily violent at that point to her, but she said he had like slammed the door and punched the door. So he's pretty upset. And I'm just like, well, you know, did you tell him you were coming here? And she's like, no, I didn't tell him I was coming here. I was like, well, I knew he knew where I lived. Um, he had never came by, but I knew he knew because I think at the one point when they were talking, I think he had dropped her off there. So I knew he knew where I lived at. And I was like, well, if he rides by here and sees your car here, I was like, this could be, you know, a problem. And so she goes home and she's like, well, I'm going to go home again to make sure he didn't come back and mess that house up because that house they were renting was in her name. So then she's going to be liable for all these damages if he decides to come up and just start wrecking the house. So she goes back over there. I said, well, I'm probably not going to stay at the house. I said, but I'll be somewhere close by in the neighborhood, you know, at a friend's house. If you need me, call. So I didn't hear from her for a while. And I would say probably around eight o'clock. I'm at a friend of mine's house. We're sitting over there in uh, his back porch. He had just got a new hot tub and a couple of us were just sitting out over there hanging out just, you know, chilling out. And the guy that I spoke about earlier, the one that ran down to that house where the guy committed suicide, the one that wrapped the shirt around his head, we have been friends for a while at this point. And he calls me and he was like, Hey, he's like, where are you at? And I said, I'm over here, you know, Nate's house around the corner. And he's like, well, if you ride by my house and you see, uh, the guy's name was Liam. He said, if you see Liam's car here, he's like, do me a favor and don't stop. And I'm like, all right. And I was like, you're going to tell me what's going on or what? And he's like, I don't really know what's going on. He said, but I know there's something going on because Felicia's really upset. He's like, I can tell she's been crying. And I was like, what do you mean? How can you tell? And he said, well, they stopped by the house. And that's really all he said. He's like, I just want to make sure, you know, you don't stop here because you think he's here. And, you know, because I know you and I are friends and, and I just don't want any shit to start at my house. But I'm trying to figure out and get to the bottom of it. Well, obviously, I kind of know why he's pissed. Cause I know the news he got, but I didn't know that the conver what the conversation entailed. I found this out later. He was out in his garage sitting around and my wife come pulling up in her car. He gets up and walks to the car and he can tell that he's a little upset. And my wife's a little upset. And he's like, Hey guys, what's going on? And the guy in the passenger seat looked at him. And he's like, have you seen chip? Now chips, a nickname of mine that a lot of people call me. So some people might call me Wade. Some people might call me chip. He went by, chip and he's like we're looking for chip and he's like i haven't seen him and he's like well you better find him before i do because when i find him i'm gonna fucking kill him and said he was just kind of like what the hell is going on and he said he could look and tell my wife was visibly upset and he's like nothing he's like i'll let you know because when i find him it's on 
And he had been making my wife ride around the neighborhood to look for me, to confront me. That's why she was upset. When he got back, he, I guess, I don't know what he went and did. I don't know if he took something or done something, but he was really upset. He had come back. He had roughed her up. He head butted her. He put holes in the wall. He smashed her phone, was throwing stuff around the house, threw like a nail polish thing that she had, busted all over the room. I mean, just done a number on the house and then was physically making her ride around to look for him. Hope you're enjoying the podcast. Here's a word from our sponsor, Rocket Money. Many of our viewers have saved thousands using Rocket Money to save the money off subscriptions they didn't even know about. Rocket Money cancels subscriptions for people that are tricky and time-consuming. Rocket Money also alerts you to subscriptions that can save you money. Try it free for 30 days. Just enough time to try it. And then completely forget about it. In fact, over 80% of people have subscriptions they forgot about. You could be wasting money and not even realizing it. Rocket Money helps you find those forgotten subscriptions so you can stop paying for ones you don't use. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps you lower your bills all in one place. Stop throwing your money away, cancel unwanted subscriptions, and manage your expenses the easy way by going to rocketmoney.com forward slash Sean, S-H-A-U-N. That's rocketmoney.com forward slash Sean, rocketmoney.com slash Sean. Thank you for supporting our sponsor, Rocket Money. Enjoy the podcast. Now, I didn't know that that's specifically what he said. That guy was just telling me if I seen his car there not to stop because the agreement was he was going to go back to my wife's house and then come over there so they could talk and kind of mediate this situation. And I was like, all right, you know, I won't I won't stop by there. I won't do anything, you know, but just keep me updated on what's going on. Well, when I hang out with him, I'm trying to contact my wife, but it's going straight to voicemail. I didn't know because he had destroyed her phone. So it wasn't working. So it's probably like 1030. I get a call from my daughter. My daughter had got off. She actually waitressed at the Mexican restaurant I had referenced earlier. She got home, noticed the house was in shambles. My wife was upset. My wife used her phone to give me a call and kind of let me know what was going on at the time. Um, you know, the, the steps that had happened said that uh, he was riding around looking for me. He was upset. Jamie had kind of caught him and was like, hey, come over here. And she's like, he, that's where he's at right now. As far as I know, he's staying there. So I was like, okay, well, as long as y'all are safe. That was my concern is him getting upset. Because at that point, my son was over there. And he's probably like five or six at this point. Um, and then my daughter's over there too. So I don't need him getting upset going back over there to where they're at causing more shit. And so I go home. Uh, at this point, it's probably like 11, 1130. I remember there was a UFC on television. I'm watching the UFC, you know, just nobody else is at my house, just hanging out. And I get a text from him, the guy. And he's like, hey, are you up? And I said, yeah, I'm up. And uh, he's like, do you care if we talk? And obviously I know about what, but I just kind of, I respond, you know, about what? And he's like, he said, I just got a few questions. He's like, I don't feel like I'm being told the truth. And he said, you know, I know we don't know each other, but I feel like you'll tell me the truth. I feel like you'll be straight with me. He said, this isn't to be an asshole. This isn't to start a fight. He said, I just got some questions. And he said, if you're comfortable, we can meet at your friend's house down the street, meaning James. And I was like, yeah, that's fine with me. And that was all in text message. 
You know, it wasn't a conversation that we had over the phone, so there was no proof. That was all in text messages in my phone, in his phone. It, it even clearly, one of them clearly stated, no BS, no drama. I just got questions. So I agreed to go down there. Now, in between him going there and that text conversation, what had happened was he left. He told my buddy that he was going to go grab some stuff and go back to his VA housing and stay there tonight and get away. Well, when he went back, they started arguing again, this time with my kids there. So my daughter called Jamie on the phone and was like, hey, I thought you said he wasn't coming back here. Like, he's back here and he's showing his ass. And so at that point, he rides over there, Jamie. And he gets up there and they're talking and he's like, you know, I thought you were supposed to be leaving. Like, you know, there's kids here. You can't be doing this shit. And he's like, you know what? He's like, I want to talk to Chip. He's like, get Chip over here. And he's like, if you want to talk to Chip, you call him or you text him. He's like, this isn't, that's not what I'm doing. He said, I'm here to make sure you don't do anything with these kids here. And so that's when he reached out. So when I get to Jamie's house, they're not even there. They come pulling up right after me. So we all get out. We all go into the garage. At this point, it's probably 12, 31 o'clock. And it wasn't a heated conversation per se. I mean, it wasn't necessarily what I would call calm. You could tell he was agitated, um, which I knew he was going to be. And so I was trying my best to answer and diffuse the situation. And he was like, you know, have you been seeing her for a while or did this just start or whatever? And I was like, dude, I was like, at the end of the day, this ain't none of your business. I was like, technically, we're still married. I was like, that's still my wife. So I don't I don't owe you an explanation. I was like, but I will tell you, no. I was like, whatever y'all had going on these last couple of months has been y'all. I said, what we when we decided we were going to get back together was just recently. Which was a lie, but. I didn't want to tell him that and get him more pissed off and him go back over there, like I said, where, where my kids were at. And, you know, he had a few more questions. I basically dodged most of them. Jamie had an idea that, you know, me and my wife were going to get back together. So he knew that I was kind of trying to de-escalate it because I could have very well said stuff to, to piss him off. Oh, yeah, we've been doing this for X amount of time, you know, but that's not what I did. And it kind of turned. I think he realized he wasn't going to get the answers he was looking for from me. So the conversation kind of turned from that to just three guys in a garage shooting the shit. I mean, they were talking about their military career. Um, I wasn't military, but the Liam was former Army and my buddy Jamie was former Coast Guard. And so they started talking about that. Like we started talking about our kids. That guy had two kids from a previous marriage. I had a son and a daughter. Uh, Jamie had a son and a daughter. So it really just became under very weird circumstances. I'll give you that. But it came it became three guys talking in a garage like that was really what it was. And he's drinking at this point in time. He's drinking beer. Um, I didn't drink while I was at the garage. I didn't know how many he had drank. He didn't appear to be like shit faced, wasted or anything to me. Um, seemed like he was still in a good headspace. And you fast forward now, it's about three thirty in the morning. And my buddy Jamie's like, all right, man, I'm fixing to go to bed. He's like, what are you going to do? And he looks at Liam and Liam's like, you know, I don't know. He's like, what you want me to do? And he's like, well, you can stay here. Or I can run you home. He's like, either way, I'm fixing to shut it down. And he's like, well, I'll get Chip to run me home then. He's like, I don't, you know, I don't really feel comfortable staying here. And my buddy looked at me, he said, are you comfortable with that? I said, yeah, I'll run him home. Because remember, he had went there to pick him up. So that guy didn't have a vehicle. And once... You know, he knew I was comfortable with taking him home. We walk out. My buddy shuts the garage. We get in my car. And he's like, you know, if I go home, we're probably just going to start arguing again. And I'm like, 
I'm, I'm, we're cracking jokes. I'm like, I live with that woman for, you know, 14 years. I know yeah, exactly what you're going to do, you know? And he's like, well, I don't really want to go on, man. He's like, you care if we go to your house? And like a split second of me almost was like, ah, but we had been getting along at that point. Good. I didn't really think it would have been anything wrong with it. And I'm, I'm good with de-escalating situations. Like even from a young age, I would be the one to kind of settle guys down if we were at a party and, and stuff would get rowdy. I was always that type of guy that could kind of smooth things over. And I was like, yeah, that's fine. So we turn and go to my house. Now, mind you, like I said, we're only five houses. So it takes 30 seconds in a car to get back to my house. And I would have walked down there that night, but it was a little chilly. So I just drove. And we drive up into my driveway and we're sitting there talking. The suicide conversation that you and I spoke about earlier, that came up while we were in the garage. And he was like, he said, does that stuff bother you? You know, that suicide. And I was like, oh, yeah. I said, I think about it all the time. And he starts to tell me a story about some time when he was in the army. He holds up his wrist and he shows me a bracelet. And he's like, do you know why I wear this bracelet? And I was like, dude, I don't know anything about you. I was like, let alone why you wear a bracelet or nothing. I don't really know anything about you. And he starts telling a story about he's in service. And there was a friend of his that had gotten shot uh, in combat. And he was trying to save them. So he's trying to like hold his head together and, and stuff like this. And he said, the army said, I didn't do it right. And that's why I got discharged, which is what led me to have, you know, issues, which is why I was at the uh, mental health facility that he was at in Alabama for a period of time. And I was just like, wow, you know, and he starts to cry. He's sitting in my car and he's crying. I see tears rolling down his face. And so at this point, Sean, I'm just thinking that this guy just needs somebody to talk to. I mean, he's just, he's getting dumped, basically, and then he's obviously still got this stuff on his mind, which I can sympathize with because I've had it on my mind. Now, we weren't in combat by any means, but it's still somebody that you care about, and you know that they're probably dead. You can't do anything to save them, and you have to witness it. So I sympathize with what he was going through. And so at that point, I was 100% my guard was down. I didn't think this was going to escalate to violence or anything like that. Um, you know, he kind of finished up the story and we went in the house. Now, I'll jump ahead just a wee bit. This story I found out later was somewhat fabricated. He himself was never in combat. He was intelligence. He fed this guy information for him to lead some guys into a certain area, wherever they were at. I don't know the specifics of where they were at, but he fed him information to go into an area, which was basically they were waiting on him. And the guy did wind up getting shot. He did die. And so he carried a lot of guilt for it. And that's not to say that, you know, he shouldn't have felt bad. Obviously I know it probably weighed on him, but he tried to make it seem like he was there with them in combat and was holding his head together. I don't know if that was to compare stories from what what we were talking about to that but that was what actually happened he fed him information so this guy was more of an intelligence somewhere behind the computer okay go here go there not actually in the shit on the ground floor i found that out later um but we go in the house and we're just kind of walking around talking about different shit i'm like yeah you know i've redone a lot of the stuff when she moved out i was just trying to change the place up we were talking about uh paintings that I had up, different things. We we're talking about my kids. We we're talking about his kids. And he kind of laughs and he's like, you know, he's like, this is a, 
pretty fucked up situation. But he said, under different circumstances, man, he said, I think you and I could have probably been real good friends. And I said, yeah, it seems like it. I mean, we had similar interests and had a lot of the same thought processes and, you know, felt the same way about certain issues. You know, even we were talking about some of my son's friends, kids we liked that he was hanging out with, kids that we didn't like. Um, so, you know, it was for all intents and purposes, it was going well. Um, now, mind you, I haven't checked in with my wife at all until I told her that I was going over there after he messaged me. When I left my house and was heading there, I told her that I was going over there to meet him. So I haven't been able to check in with her since probably three or four hours at this point. Now we're in my house. He's walking out back to smoke a cigarette. He walked out front to smoke a cigarette. Um, I had uh, security cameras, but they only recorded in the event of a break-in. It was, it was kind of before Ring became a mainstay everywhere. It wasn't with Ring. It was with another company. So there was cameras in the house, but like I said, they only recorded if there was an alarm trip. It wasn't something that you could go back and pull footage on, but you could still see that the back door was open at this point. The front door was open at this point. And we're sitting in there and he did have a few beers at my house. And then we did share two uh, shots uh, together of some of my favorite whiskey that I like to drink. But that was really the extent of it. I think we done two shots. He had two beers. And that was uh, that was really all the alcohol that was drank, at least at my home. And we got on the subject of uh, tattoos. And, you know, he was asking me about some of mine. I was asking about some of his. And one of my son's friend's mom at that at that time, um, he was like, you know, I've heard her say, you know, stuff about people with tattoos. You know, she thought they were trashy or whatever. And I'm just like, well, she's never said that to me. I was like, obviously, I said, I'm covered in them. And I kind of pulled my shirt down a little bit. And you could see this one here. And when I did that, I don't know if you can tell by the camera, but right here, there's an open heart surgery scar. And so when I pulled my shirt down a little bit to show him that one, he's seen that. He lifts up the bottom of my shirt because he's like, damn, what happened there? And I said, I had open heart surgery in 2001. So he lifts up the bottom of my shirt to see like the full zipper scar. And he's like, wow. He's like, that's gnarly. And when he does this, he's got to see the gun that I had on my hip. Like I was a, and I want to go into detail on this here. I was a licensed CWP holder. Had been at that point in time for probably over a year. I'd own a shotgun from the time I was 18. I'd own multiple handguns since I was 21. I had, I wouldn't say I was a collector, but I had a lot. I had a 38 revolver with no hammer. I had an SKS. I had an AK-47. I was an enthusiast, I guess, if you will. I had a 40 caliber. The particular gun that I had on me, which was my carry weapon, was a 9mm Smith & Wesson. Um, I had been pulled over with that gun from the police uh, at a period of time before that. The numbers were run on the gun, which came back clean. Um, they even told me, they said, you know, continue to carry. We appreciate and, and thank for people that carry the right way, carry legally. You know, you make our job safer. And so there was documents run that that was a gun that I would have as my carry weapon. Well, he either didn't acknowledge it or he didn't see it. I don't know how he didn't see it, but he didn't mention anything about the gun I had on my hip. I don't know how he wouldn't have seen it, but he didn't speak on it. He didn't say anything about it. When he puts my shirt back down, he's like, man, he's like, bring it in, bro. Bring it in. And he hugs me, kind of bear hugs me and picks me up a little bit. You know how when guys, you know, especially if they had a drink or two, they kind of pick guys up or whatever, play wrestling. And I thought it was a little odd, like, why the hell would he do that? But he put me back down immediately. It wasn't like, you know, that's when everything started. And he's like, where's your bathroom at? And so I pointed down the hall. 
I figured, all right, well, here's my chance. I'm going to kind of text my wife a little bit, let her know, hey, everything's good. We're just hanging out or whatever. So I do that. I kind of move and put myself in front of the stove in my kitchen. Now, I'm going to describe my kitchen here a little bit. When you come down this hallway from where he's at, you're literally in the kitchen at this point. Immediately to the right is your refrigerator. Then you have a little bit of counter space. It curves back. You got the stove, a little bit more counter space. It curves coming back the other way, and you have your sink. So pretty small confines. I'd say from cabinet to cabinet, it's about eight feet, maybe. And, you know, that could be generous. So I'm like in the middle up against the stove. So the refrigerator is on my left. The sink is to my right. I'm in the middle. He comes out of the bathroom and he don't say a word. His head's kind of down. He walks straight up to me and bam. Hand was up under my neck, pushed me up off my feet. I went on to the fucking stove. It was a glass top stove. So I'm like sliding around and I'm just like, what the hell? And he's grabbing me, pushing me back. And he looks at me dead in my eyes. And I remember looking at his eyes. His eyes were gray, like this wall behind me. And he says, I'm going to fucking kill you. And like at that point, my eyes get big. I'm just like, holy fuck. And I'm, I'm hoping at somewhere in this conversation that he's kidding. Like he's going to back off and just laugh about it or whatever. But he's not. He's not kidding. He's not playing. He's not fucking around. And I kind of slide. I was able to slide off the stove. And he tries to bring his knee up to like knee me in the side. So I turn my body in to try to block it as best I could. And we're still kind of wrestling around. And I tell him, I'm like, dude, if you don't get the fuck off me, I'm going to shoot you. He cocks back with his right hand. I see it coming. He's he's holding me with his left. He's coming with his right. I kind of lift my chin up a little bit. He clips the bottom of it. He doesn't make a, it's not a face hit. He kind of clips the bottom of it. So when he does that, his momentum makes him break the hold that he had on me, kind of controlling me. And he kind of stumbles a little bit. Well, at this point, I'm literally in that corner because, you know, you have your stove here and then this way is the sink. I'm backed up into that corner and he's already turning, coming back to me. Like once he kind of stumbled over, he's already getting his bearings. He's coming back to me. He's charging at me. I pulled out my gun and I shot. Now, I thought it was only twice in the heat of everything, the adrenaline pumping. I thought it was only twice. He dropped straight down. I'm just like, holy shit. I'm trying to get my bearings about everything. Don't really know what's going on. Adrenaline pumping. I've, I've never shot anybody before. You know, I mean, this is uh, all intents and purposes. Like I've never been in trouble before. Like the worst thing I'd ever had was a speeding ticket. I've never been to jail. I've never been in trouble. I didn't have a record. I didn't grow up in the streets. This was not normal for me. You know, if anything, people would classify me as like a hustler, a guy that would you know, it was about making money. You know, I would sell CDs back in the day and movies and stuff. I was a guy that was just trying to buy something for a dollar and sell it for two. Never, you wouldn't hear anybody classify me as a violent person. So this happens and I immediately take out my phone. I call 911, which you said you played that in the, the trailer. So you heard, you can tell in that trailer that like I'm, I'm panicking. I don't know what to do. I don't know what's going on. And they're asking me questions. I'm answering as best I could. And you can hear in that trailer, you can hear him. He's making noises. Now, he never mentioned, he never says a word after the shooting, but he's making noises. What that's been described as to me was what people call the death rattle. It's just the noise that people make. And 
you know, I'd never done CPR before. I wasn't trained in that, which they didn't tell me to do that. When I explained that I'd shot him twice, she asked me to go get uh, a towel and put over the wound. So I'll go to my bathroom. I yank the towel down so much so that it actually yanks the rack completely off the wall. You know how you have these little towels that you put on the rack and they hang there? He yanked the rack completely off the wall. Um, I go back. I lift up his shirt. I'm searching for the wounds. That's why originally I thought it was two because I only seen two. There was another one that was a little higher. I just didn't pull his shirt up high enough. So I hold the towel there while the 911's coming. You know, again, same situation. It seems like forever uh, before they get there. And she tells me, she's like, you got an officer coming. She's like, make sure that gun is not in your hand, laid in plain sight and unloaded. So I unload the clip. I lay it uh, on the unload the clip and the gun, lay it all on the counter. I go outside with my hands up and he's uh, he's like, you know, you're not under arrest. He's like, we're just going to put the cuffs on you until we can figure out, you know, what's going on. I got to, you know, go in here, survey the scene and everything. And I'm like, okay. I kind of told him where I was at and all that. Now I want to paint the scene a little bit before I go too much further. We're locked up. You know, I, like I said, I'm in this corner. I shoot. He falls straight back. His head is probably about a foot from the refrigerator. So it's almost like we're straight out of that corner going straight over to the refrigerator. His head's about a foot from it. He's not up against it. He's not laying on it. Where he fell and went straight back, his head is about a foot from the refrigerator. Two of these bullets went through and through. One hit the refrigerator door handle, then hit the refrigerator door itself and ricocheted off and hit a wall almost to where my dog was at. Um, it went right above my dog cage on the wall. The other one, I had a 24 pack of water. I think it was like Aquafina or something like that, right beside the refrigerator on the counter. Now the cops didn't find this in the initial investigation, but the, the bullet went through a couple of bottles of water and landed in one of the bottles of water. The third bullet stayed in him and never come out. So now if you know you got two exit wounds in a body, then obviously there are going to be two bullets somewhere in that house. They never found that bullet that was in the water. They only found the one that, that ricocheted in the house. So it's clear that he's not so far up against that refrigerator that he's like propped up against it. If you fall straight back, if you were just to stand him up, he's got to be right in front of me and there's no place I can be than right where I said I was in that corner. One of the projectiles, anybody that's fired a gun knows that when a, a bullet casing comes out after you shoot it, it goes back into the right. There was a casing in the sink that the cops found. If You could see it down in the drain. It didn't go down the drain. It was just sitting down there. So you could tell that for that casing to be there, I've got to be standing in that corner. You could tell by the direction of where they hit that that's where I was standing. So it was really elementary work. You didn't have to be a seasoned police officer to say, okay, he was standing there, bullets went here, bodies here. It kind of, it was a scene that painted itself. At no point, Sean, during that phone call was I thinking, damn, I'm fixing to go to jail. I just done something wrong. You know, I'm in South Carolina, brother. We got the castle law here. We got, um, you know, stand your ground. I was threatened. I was threatened in my home. I even gave a warning and he still said he was going to kill me. And then he swung at me. So I'm thinking at this point, I'm in my right to do whatever I have to do. That's what castle law states. You have your right to protect yourself at your home, your job, and your vehicle 
including deadly force, if your life is threatened. It don't get no more threatening than somebody say, I'm going to fucking kill you. And, you know, so I did what I had to do. I never thought I was going to be in trouble. So the cop gets there. He puts me in the back seat of uh, the second crew. Uh, the second cruiser pulled up around the same time he did. They put me in the back of there. Both of them go in the house. Um, I can't really say for how long. They come back out, and he's like, we got him. We called an ambulance. They're coming to pick him up. He's like, but we're just going to keep you in the car for right now. And I'm just like, okay. And so I'm sitting there in the car. By this time, it's like 6.30 in the morning. So it's starting to break daylight. People are starting to wake up, get moving in my neighborhood. My neighborhood's like a house every couple feet. I mean, it's cookie cutter style neighborhood, you know. So people are starting to like look going on. There's two cops here. Then an ambulance pulls up. Then the SUV ambulance or whatever that follows them. Then more cop cars. They're lying down the whole damn street. People can't even get out of their driveway because there's cops blocking their driveway. And I'm in the back seat of the cop car. My neighbor to the right of me comes out, sees me in the car. She's like, you know, throwing her hands up like, what's going on? Is everybody okay? And I'm like, everybody you know is okay. I was like, you know, something happened. And so the cops see her talking to me. They're like, you got to get away from him. Can't talk to him. I still don't know what's going on. I see the ambulance pull up. I see the ambulance stay there for a while. I see them bring him out. I see them put them in the ambulance. They drive off. More cops come up. They're circling around. At this point, I, they never took my phone from me when they put me in the car. I was able to get my phone out of my pocket, even though my hands were behind my back, and text my wife. And I was just like, hey, shit went bad. Cops are here. Liam shot. As best I could. I probably misspelled some stuff, but I was trying to, I couldn't really see it. You know, I was having to turn the best I could. Well, I guess she come down there. Um, they obviously wouldn't let her to the car, but she was kind of letting them know what was going on. And at this point, one of the female officers, the one who's I was in the back of her car, she comes up and she reads me my rights. She's like, you're being placed under arrest. She reads me my rights. She's like, you know, do you want to answer any questions or make a statement? I was like, no. I was like, not without a lawyer. I've seen enough shit to know, like when they start doing that, don't say shit, get a lawyer and let the lawyer talk. So that was my plan. I'm like, I, I didn't do anything wrong. They'll figure it out eventually, but I'm not telling these cops anything because I know how they twist shit. So I was just like, no. And I'm still in this car. What It was like two and a half, three hours past this point. This was already an hour or so after they had been there. And I had to use the bathroom. So one of the cops that was walking around, I mean, they're still walking out in the yard. They're putting tape up and stuff. And I kind of called him over there. And I'm like, uh, man, I got to use the bathroom. He's like, you got to hold it. I'm like, brother, there ain't no holding. Like I've been holding, like this is fixing to happen. It can happen in this car or it can be that yard or, or whatever. And I said, but I got to go. And so they let me out of the car and he's like, this is your home. And I said, yes, this is my house. I live here. And so we come in the house and they let me go use the bathroom. And he's like, is there somewhere you can change? And I was like, my bedroom upstairs. We go upstairs. They take off everything I had on, but my underwear. So I had to give them my boots, pants, shirt, um, belt, pretty much everything that I was wearing at the time, I gave to them to collect for evidence. Uh, they allowed me to change and put in some other clothes. I don't know if I'm going to jail at this point or what. So I'm kind of dressing like halfway warm because I've heard it's cold as shit in there sometimes. And I'm thinking I'm going to go out. So we go back down the stairs, we come outside. And at this point, one of the detectives is standing there and he said, is there somewhere you can go while we finish our investigation? 
And so I'm kind of like cross-eyed looking at him because I'm like, a minute ago, y'all just told me I was under arrest. Now you're telling me I can go somewhere. And he was like, you know, we're not sure what we're going to do yet. He's like, we're still investigating. He's like, but I, I think it's pretty clear. He even told me that. He's like, I think it's pretty clear what's going on. He said, but we just can't have you here while we're doing it. So I gave him an address of a friend of mine that was around the corner. By this time, people are literally sitting out by the house in their golf carts. And I seen my buddy sitting out there because the word started traveling, you know, because we've been out there three or four hours at this point. And I said, yeah, I was like, he lives at such and such address. That's where I'll be. By this time, my mom's even been notified. So she's about two hours from where I'm at. She's there. She's outside. I come out. She's, you know, of course, panicked and crying. And I told him, I said, look, I can't stay here right now. I got to go to, you know, my buddy's house around the corner. So I get on his golf cart. They follow me over there. I'm kind of filling in on what's going on. At this point, I'm thinking, all right, well, they can see what happened. You know, it's pretty clear now. I'm, I'm good to go. I'm over there probably an hour. Uh, SUV comes riding up. It's that same gentleman. I go up to the SUV, kind of motions for me to come over. And he said, uh, I think we've pretty much got everything we need from your house. He said, uh, will you come on down to the station and answer some questions? And I kind of look at him. I'm like, I will, but I'm not coming without a lawyer. And he's like, who's your lawyer? Well, at the time, the only lawyer that I had was a guy that I was using for my divorce. And luck would have it. He was a former cop and he knew him. So he's like, oh, OK. He said, I know Donnie very well. He said he used to be one of us. He said, I'll get with him tomorrow and we'll set up a time for you to come in and give a statement. And I was like, all right, so I can go back home. And he's like, yeah, you're free to go back home. And I kind of asked him, I'm like, well, was it like what do I do about the mess and stuff? I was like, y'all have to clean it up. He said, we don't do that. He's like, that's on you. He's like, that's not our responsibility. And I'm like, all right, come to find out that is true. They do. That's not their responsibility. They gather evidence. They do their investigation and they leave. Uh, the suicide that we mentioned earlier, they had to hire the, the his wife had to hire like a professional cleaning crew to come in and clean all that up. So they're not liable or responsible for any mess. Now, the, the weird part about this is we get back home, we go into the kitchen where it happened. There's nothing. There's really nothing there. There's a little bit of smeared blood on the floor close to the refrigerator where it was finally starting to seep through his clothes in the back. Um, so there's, it's not like in the movies where you see somebody get shot and blood just splatters all over the wall. These were regular steel full metal jacket rounds. They were practice rounds, really, if you will. They weren't hollow points. They weren't designed to rip holes or tear flesh or make the most damage. Um, but there was nothing, nothing. My mom got that up with two paper towels and the mess was clean. The only thing there that you could tell had happened was the dent from the handle in the refrigerator where the bullet struck it and then struck the wall. And I may not even have spotted that right off, but they had put tape around it to, for photographs, for photographing the evidence. So they had one on there and one on the wall. And so I'm just kind of flabbergasted. I'm still taking all this in. Like I hadn't really had a chance to process it. I'm being told I'm under arrest. Then I'm being told I can go to a friend's house. Then I'm being told just come in with me later on, you know, come in later on and tell us your statement. So I'm, I'm kind of halfway relieved that I'm like, all right, well, at least I know I'm going, you know, getting arrested and I got to, you know, answer all these questions, but at least I know I'm not getting arrested. I think I'm good. So my wife finally gets there. I'm telling her, informing her on what happened or whatever. So the adrenaline is still pumping. I didn't sleep none that night. Um, the plan was anyway for her to move back in. Well, this kind of put that in and fast forward really quickly. We wanted to get out of that house 
and get everything into our house. Um, but the police were there also documenting holes in the wall, damage that he had caused. They were looking into, you know, his vehicle, stuff that was in his vehicle. So they were there for a little bit too, collecting evidence. And we get a lot of her stuff moved back over the next two days. This all happened on a Sunday morning. We, we got together that Saturday night in the garage. The shooting happened Sunday morning. Monday morning, I go to my lawyer's office, uh, write up a statement. He asked them, he's like, all right, what questions do you have? We're not coming into the station. You, you tell me the questions you have. And so they send him a list of questions. He sends back the statement that I wrote. He's like, all your questions are answered in the statement. If you need anything else, give me a holler. I didn't know if that's how shit went. I'd never needed a lawyer for anything like that before. And he's like, now nah, you're good. He's like, anything they want to know, you answered in the statement. He's like, anything else, I'll let you know. So I leave. This is Monday. I'm thinking, all right, everything's good. Tuesday, didn't hear anything. Wednesday evening, about four o'clock, lawyer calls me on the phone. I see his name pop up. Answering, he's like, hey, I got some bad news. And that is not what you want your lawyer to ever tell you in any sort of circumstance is that I got some bad news. And he says, I don't know what they got. I don't know why. I don't know why they're doing it. He said, they're charging you with murder. And I'm like, you got to be fucking kidding me. I'm like, why? And he was like, I'm guessing they're trying to paint you as the paint. This thing is like a love triangle and you killed him to get your wife back. And I'm like, dude, this isn't a new thing. Like me and my wife have been split up since November. Like we were getting back together. If anybody's pissed off and wanted to kill somebody, it was him, not me. I'm like, I'm getting, we're getting back together. I've got no reason to do it. And he's like, I don't know, man. He's like, That's, they're not telling me why. They're just telling me they're charging you. And they want you to turn yourself in tomorrow at 12 o'clock at the local detention center. And I'm just like, my head's spinning. I'm just like, I'll call you back. So I hung the phone up and I started calling some people and saying, like, who do I need to call? Like, who's the, the lawyer that I need to call? Everybody that I called gave me the same name. Kept popping up over and over. Andy Savage, Andy Savage, Andy Savage. And so I'm like, all right, well, I guess this is the guy. I mean, like even, even another lawyer that handled this stuff told me to call Andy Savage. So I call his office and I get like a, I don't know, it's a receptionist or like a, a automated line. I kind of leave a message, tell him what's going on. About 30 minutes later, I get a call back from his secretary. I fill her in. She's like, let me give this to Andy. She's like, I'll give you a call back. Probably about 5.30, she calls me back. She said, when are you supposed to turn yourself in? I said, I'm supposed to turn myself in tomorrow, 12 o'clock. And she's like, Andy said, can you be at our office at 7 in the morning? And I'm like, yeah, I'll be there. So obviously my wife's very upset. My mom's upset. Like they all come down. They take me or my mom comes down. They take me to the lawyer's office that next day at 7. Now mentally, I'm preparing to turn myself in, you know, at lunchtime. We go to the lawyer. And we start breaking down the whole situation start to finish. We start telling them, you know, why we split up. They met, you know, the issues that they had had. You know, apparently I, I was finding out, I was finding out a lot of this in that meeting that their relationship had had violent issues before all this. Like he had became physically abusive. He had choked her. He had kind of roughed her up. And as she's telling them some of this, I'm hearing it for the first time. And because that's what the lawyer said, he's like, look, he's like, you know, don't lie to me. I need to know the truth. If I'm going to help y'all get out of this and, you know, get, get your name cleared, I need to know the truth about everything because if you're lying to me, I'll find out and then we're going to have problems because I can't 
you know, do my job if you're not being 100% truthful. So she's telling all this. And for the first time I'm hearing, I'm just looking at her like, damn, you didn't tell me none of this. And we get done telling them everything. And as we're telling them stories, they're simultaneously printing stuff off. They're getting records. They're pulling military stuff as much as they can. Um, they're getting reports on his wife and his kids and where he lived and his past. I mean, it was just like something out of a movie. As quick as we're telling him, he's got a team doing this. Now, I was like, man, this shit's like, you know, I've never seen anything like this. Well, I found out why that they, they have the team that they do because the, the cost for something like this is not cheap, brother. It is very expensive. And the lawyer tells me when we get done explaining this, he's like, I don't really understand why we're here. He's like, I don't know if somebody's trying to get reelected if they're trying to make a case or something, he's like, but if you're telling me the truth, he said, you don't have anything to worry about. And he's like, if you want me to take your case, I'll take your case. He's like, it's, it's 50,000 to take the case. He's like, it's another 10,000 for a retainer to get started. And he was like, then, you know, obviously that could be more expenses depending on if we have to get witness testimonies, experts, just that and the other. And so I'm like, all right, you know, and I'm thinking I'll figure out some way to pay this guy. I've got a little money. And my wife pulls out a credit card. She's like, I got a $20,000 limit on this. My mom pulls out two credit cards. She's like, I've got a 20 here and a 10 here. So he paid, we paid the 50,000 up front right there on credit cards. So my wife was down for me. My mom was down for me. Like, so I think then too, he's like, all right, they're serious. There's not like one of these people is going to try to pay me $200 a month, you know, for the next 50 years. And so he starts rolling. And immediately what he does, he said, let me see if I can get your surrender pushed back so we can work with you a little more. So he goes out, he makes a phone call. He comes back in and he said, I got it pushed back to Friday. He said, I'm going to try to get it pushed back till Sunday. So I'm just like, this dude's got some stroke because he just makes a phone call and he gets me pushed back to Friday. And then sure enough, Thursday, this was Wednesday, Thursday, he calls me and he's like, hey, I got you pushed till Sunday. He's like, I tried to push it later. He's like, but when you get locked up for a murder, you can't get bond from a magistrate. You have to see the circuit court. The circuit court floats from county to county in your area. So if they're not in your county, you may have to sit in jail a month, however long it takes for it to circle back around. As luck would have it, circuit court was in Berkeley County, which was my county, that week. So he said, I want you to go in Sunday, and we're going to file a motion for a bond hearing on Monday. And he said, I typically don't want to try to get a bond hearing this quick. He said, especially if it's in the news. By this time, the news news stations have picked it up. There's news cameras outside my house or news vans outside my house. They're just camped out there. Um, it's, it's like something out of a movie. He's like, so when it's hot in the press, he said, I like to let it sit for a little while and then try to go in and get a bond hearing when it's not at the forefront of the news. He said, but with everything you've told me with your story, he's like, we're going to, we're going to go for it. He's like, we're going to go Monday. So in between Thursday and Sunday, we're prepping for this bond hearing. I'm getting character letters written from friends, from coworkers, from bosses, from everybody that would. Some people, believe it or not, Sean, some of the people that I asked to write character letters wouldn't. They said, no, I'm not doing it. Wouldn't write. And these are people that I consider dear friends, like that I thought would be my, my people, you know, and they wouldn't do it. But a lot did. And in a matter of like three days, we got together almost 80 something character letters together and like well-written care, detailed character letters. And, you know, like I said, it's from all walks, people that I've known a little bit, people that I've known a long time, coworkers, past coworkers. I mean, you know, everybody we could get. And we thought we had a pretty strong case for bond. 
But as you know, when you go in for something like this, there's no guarantee you're going to get bond. So we're, we're prepping, we're hoping for the best, but at the same time, mentally, I'm preparing for the worst that, all right, you know, I might have to be in here for a while. They don't grant me bond. There's no telling when I'm going to get out. So we have a little get together at my house uh, that Saturday. You know, a lot of my family come down. We just kind of cooked and ate. And I mean, the situation was a little tense, but it was kind of like, you know, everyone was trying to give out good vibes, basically, is what it was. And we hang out, you know, had a good night that Sunday. Uh, got up, went to church, got out of church, and I had to go turn myself in at one o'clock that Sunday. And it was kind of like that scene from the movie Goodfellas. You know, I, I'd never known anybody could just go turn themselves in. You know, usually what I've seen, they just come and arrest your ass. And so I get in the car, my wife, me and my wife are in the back, my mom's driving, and I was tell, I was like, all right, take me to jail. And they drive me to the jail, drop me off, and like my mind is just spinning. I feel like I ain't slept in a week. And I really hadn't a whole lot, you know, a couple hours here and there. I just couldn't. Your mind is just racing. I'm doing shit like looking up the detention center, seeing things that have happened. That's the first thing I pull up, inmate killed in, you know, Hill Finkley Detention Center six months before this. And I'm just reading all this bad shit. And I'm just like, like this is, I don't know what I'm going into. Like I said, I've never been locked up before. So we go, they drop me off. Um, they go in there, they start the process. I'm sitting on a bench. They start doing the fingerprints, photos, and I'm sitting beside this guy, appeared to be like a just a biker or whatever, and he kind of looks at me, and he's like, uh, bench of shame, huh? And I'm just like, yeah, I guess you could say that. And uh, just I, I've always been told, too, like, never talk. Like, just keep to yourself. Don't, don't go in and try to make conversation. People don't like that shit. And so I'm sitting there. I'm being quiet. We get, uh, you know, fingerprinted, then they carry us to holding. Well, I already knew that I would I would have to go in front of the magistrate as a formality, but I knew there was nothing the magistrate could do. So it, that wasn't like I was holding out for that. I knew my thing was on Monday, you know, the, the big hearing. So we they call us in after about an hour from being in the cell. Most people are sleeping. Some people are talking, but they call me, that biker guy, and another little young kid. Now, the biker guy had been trying to talk the whole time while we were in there, you know, just running his mouth. You could tell he was in there for DUI. We go. Uh, the kid had like a simple possession for marijuana. The guy, obviously, you know, like I said, he had DUI, second offense. Here is a word from today's sponsor, Aura. If you Google someone, you can find out all kinds of personal information about them. This information is accessible because of data brokers who profit by selling your information to robocallers, telemarketers, spammers. You can use my link, https dot dot forward slash forward slash aura.com aura is a-u-r-a forward slash sean atwood s-h-a-u-n-a-t-t wood to try two weeks for free and see how many data brokers are sharing your info also linked in my description box on this youtube version or scan the qr code on the screen Aura also monitors your emails and passwords to see if they were involved in a data breach and exposed on the dark web and gives you the recommendations on what to do. Aura has almost every internet safety tool you'll ever need all inside one app. And they get to me, my last name is Williamson's last name. And so I'm always going to be at the ass end of everything with it being on a W. And he's like, you know, you're being charged with murder, possession of weapon during a violent crime. I can't, you know, do anything for this. You have to just sing by the circuit court. As he says this, this biker's sitting there, and we're all handcuffed, wrist to ankle, you know. And he kind of looks up like that, you know. 
and he slides all the way down to the other end of the bench. He's like, fuck that. He just slides down. He don't say nothing. <laughs> we go back to the uh, um, the holding cell, and he gets his shit from where he was sitting next to me and goes completely to the other side of the room. Like, he don't say nothing else to me the whole time we're in there. And it was, I'm just kind of, I'm thinking that's funny, but I'm not laughing. You know, I was like, well, at least now I can just fucking get some peace. Cause he's just steady and yap, 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 yap in my ear. So we go back. Um, they're bringing the most God awful food that you can imagine. I don't know what the fuck that was. I don't know if it was, I don't know what it was supposed to be. It was just, it was God. It was nasty as hell, but I was starving. So I ate it. And the next morning I wake up, didn't really sleep that night either. It's hard to sleep in there. They don't turn the lights off. So it's bright as shit, cold. People are steady coming in all night, whoever they arrested. Cause I'm not in a pod now. I'm in the, uh, like the holding area. So anybody they arrest throughout that night, doors open, brr, brr, you know, it's just in and out. You can't get no fucking rest. And morning comes around. So I'm kind of waiting. I'm still in street clothes. I'm in what I got arrested in. So they transfer me to go see the uh, bond here. They take me out and they're walking me from the jail to the court. And there's like an underground walkway that you walk through. This shit was intimidating as hell. I mean, it looked like they were walking me into hell. I mean, it's like these brick walls and it just seemed like it kind of done one of these numbers. So it's like, it never ends. And I'm just like, Jesus, you know, just the walk alone was intimidating, let alone what I'm going in there to be seen by this judge for. And we go in there. And uh, there's this room that's full of people that are being seen. All these guys are dressed out in orange jumpsuits, green jumpsuits, blue jumpsuits, depending on where they were at. And I'm the only one in there in street clothes. And so I go in there, I'm sitting, and I'm just listening to all these guys talking. I hear this one guy talking about, you know, he's going to testify in a trial. It's going to have him go to Atlanta. He's like, I'm not really going to testify. He's like, I just want to go to Atlanta. He's like, they got much better food in Atlanta than they do here. And I'm just kind of like, damn. And this other guy's like, yeah, and if I fucking see somewhere I can escape, like, yeah, I'm going to escape if I can, if I got the chance. And I'm just like, Jesus Christ. I'm sitting there listening to this one guy. He goes in first. He comes back, and he's happy that he got 15 years. And he's like, I thought I was going to get 30, man. He's like, judge, cut me a break. He's like, you know, I think because my sister didn't die. Somebody's like, sister didn't die. He said, yeah, I set her on fire. Set his sister on fire. I'm just like, Holy hell. And I'm not saying nothing. I'm just sitting in the corner, looking at the skillet, looking at the floor. I don't say a word. And then finally a guy asked me, he's like, uh, what you in here for? And I said, well, I got, you know, about to get bond court or something like, or no, he said, what you in here for family court. And I said, yeah, something like that. And, uh, the other, another guy that was sitting beside him said, no, he said, you the guy from Cane Bay. And I kind of cut my eyes over there at him. That's the name of the neighborhood that I live in. And I was like, how'd you know that? And he's like, we got TVs in here, man. He's like, I seen your picture on the news. And I was like, oh, okay. And he's like, uh, he said, you got bond this morning. And I said, yeah. He's like, well, good luck, man. I hope you get out of here. I hope you beat that shit. So it was, it was not as what I was expecting. I mean, obviously some people in there were saying some, some off the wall shit, but it wasn't really what I was expecting to, you know, the horror, I guess you go in expecting the worst. You know? So people go in, finally they uh, get me, I go in. Now, they got me again, handcuff wrist to wrist and another chain down to your ankles. Um, they bring me in. Fucking courtroom was massive. I mean, 
huge flags everywhere, bench way up high. I mean, courtroom was packed. A lot of my friends had come down for support. As I'm walking through, I see a bunch of them in the audience. I see my wife. I see my mom. Some of my best friends. All everybody that came down in that time period while I was in I was in jail to this bond hearing. And we go up, and of course, the state's trying to paint me as this prolific murderer that planned all this. And you know, I'm a menace to society, and I don't need to see the streets, and I don't need that bond because I could do it again, and all this. And my lawyer's like, "Look, he's never been in trouble in his life. Like this guy attacked him in his own home. He's had the same job for 15 years with the same company. He's got kids. He's lived in this community for you know eight nine years at this point. He's like, he's not, you know, he's not a danger to society. He's like, he's still he's still employed at this point." Now, I'll get into that for just a second. I did have a job. I was still with that same company. I was actually out of work at that time due to my back messing up with me again. And I was on basically like a short-term disability. I was scheduled to go back in a few weeks when all this stuff took place. I'd had a procedure on my back right before all this happened to where they go in and they burn the nerve endings from your spine. It, it sounds painful. And it's not the most pleasant, but it's not as bad as it sounds. What that does is that alleviates the pain you feel, you know, whenever you have to bend over repetitively and, and shit like that. These nerve endings, they grow back over time. So when they do this, it lasts for about six to eight months. They grow back. And then you would have to go in there and have it done again if you wanted to, you know, get that pain relief. Now, this was the first time that I'd had this procedure and I was pretty sore. So all this had happened when all this stuff went on. So that's kind of another factor in this whole thing is I wasn't a hundred percent. I've heard people say, well, why didn't you try to fight the guy? I could barely fucking move. Like I couldn't, you know, that wouldn't have been a, a fair fight at all. He'd have beat the hell out of me if we were, or, you know, worse possibly. I couldn't barely move. So that's another reason why I did have to resort to what it did. So we're sitting in this bond here and he tells him, yeah, he's got a job. He needs this, he needs that. And so I'm waiting on this judge to make her decision. Anything I've ever seen on TV, judges make their decision right there, either bond granted or bond denied. She looks straight at us and she's like, all right. She said, I'll make my decision and notify the counsel and the prosecutor or whatever and bangs the gap. And I'm just so fucking confused. I don't, I don't know what the hell is going on. I look over at my lawyer. I'm like, what the hell does that mean? And he said, it means she'll get back to us. And I don't even have a chance to like talk to them. They're just, bam, they're taking me out back to the room. I'm going back in there. They're moving my hands from, you know, in front of me to behind me. And I'm like, you know, what does that mean? She'll get back to us. And he's like, ah, oh, she'll probably let you know something within a week or two. And I'm just like a week or two. I'm like, I'm, I'm hoping I'm getting out of here, you know, soon. And I'm just like, Jesus, man, I can't believe I'm being here a fucking week. Like this legal system is you know, crazy. And uh, we go, we come out, they put me back in the room. I still got to stay there for everybody else to go through their thing. And then they finally carry me back to, uh, the holding cell. So I'm in there. A little bit of time goes by. I go up to the phone, call my wife. I'm like, all right, what the, what the hell is going on? And she's like, you got bond. She's like, they've already told us. She's like, but you're probably not going to get out till tomorrow because they got to process all the paperwork. Cause at this point in time, it's late in the day. So I'm like, all right, well, as long as I got bond, if I got to do another night, I can do another night. Mind you, I'm thinking another night's in this holding cell. So this is probably, Four o'clock, four o'clock ish. There's still people getting out after four o'clock. They come, so and so, you're out, so and so, on up until like nine thirty, ten o'clock. People are still getting out. So I'm holding out hope that maybe I'm gonna get out of there. 
I think about 10.30, door opens, Williamson. I'm like, fuck yeah, I hopped from the top, like straight down, landing on my feet. I'm like, hell yeah, I'm getting out of here. I'm like, yeah, that's me, let's go. And he's like, all right, we're transferring you to CPOT. I'm just like, uh, I'm supposed to be getting out of here tomorrow. He's like, maybe. He's like, but that's not my call. He's like, we transfer you out depending on how long you've been in there. You know, it just kind of goes in a rotation. And I'm like, all right. Well, the guy of crazy scenario, the guy looks at me and he's like, you're uh, Leah's dad, right? Leah was my daughter. And I was like, yeah. And he was like, my wife taught your daughter in gymnastics. He was like, he was her personal trainer for gymnastics or she was her personal trainer for gymnastics. And I'm just like, how you doing? I didn't really know what to say. I'm like, you know, so let me ask you, I was like, where am I going? Like, what am, what am I walking into here so I can prepare? And he's like, nah, he's like, C-Pod's pretty laid back. He's like, just go in, mind your business. You'll be fine. He's like, those guys are pretty well self-policed. He's like, they don't cause too much shit. I'm like, all right. So they go and they give me the orange jumpsuit, you know, like your normal little prison jumpsuit. And they give you your cup and toothbrush and three-in-one body wash, roll of toilet paper, all that in a bag, shower flip-flops and send me on my way. And I go in and there's like two tiers. You got one on the bottom steps and then one on the top. When you go into these rooms, wide open room, bunk beds on both sides, lined from the wall. So there's a lot of people in this room. It's not like an individual cell. And so I go up to the top. I'm walking through, walk all the way to the end, come back. I'm looking for a bottom bunk. Obviously, those are all full up from people, you know, there previously. And as I'm walking back, I happen to look over and I spot the guy that set his sister on fire. And he kind of nods his head like, you know, hey, what's up? And I'm just pointing up above like, care if I go up there? Not thinking like he's got to set his sister on fire. I said, you care if I go up here? He's like, no, man, go ahead. And so we go up there and I'm kind of set myself down. Even though in my mind mentally, I know I'm getting out of here tomorrow. I'm still like trying to take all this in. I'm just like, damn, I'm sitting in jail right now. I'm laying up. I'm looking at the ceiling and I'm thinking, do people really go to jail and didn't do anything wrong? Like, does this really happen? I was oblivious to how many people this had happened to at this point because it had never happened to me, which is the case. Most people don't realize how many people go to jail and they're only in there because they didn't have the ability to get a good lawyer like I did, you know, the, the financial support to get a good lawyer. And I'm just, my mind is blown. And it did get to a point where I wanted to get a shower, but then I'm also skeptical about it. I'm like, I done seen some movies where some shit happens in a shower, you know, I don't know if I want to go do that or not. And I decide I'm going to go into the shower. And one of the guys, I guess he's like one of the head inmates, trustees or whatever. I guess because I am heavily tattooed, you know, um, he just assumed that I'd been in there before. And he's like, well, you know how the shower works, right? I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah. Didn't have a clue. Didn't know what the fuck he was talking about. No clue. Uh, and so we go in there. What it is, I don't, I don't know if you experienced it or not, but the, when you take the shower, you push in this little button. And so it only lets the water come out for like five second increments. You know, there was a piece of um, uh, plastic that you could wedge in there and keep it where it just ran constantly. I don't know how they did it. I couldn't figure it out. So I was having to take showers, like holding it with my thumb and do the best I could, you know. And again, still, I'm just like trying, I'm hurrying it up as quick as I can, get a little refresher, get out, go back to the bunk. And I'm just listening to a lot of these guys talk. And the conversations that was being had, man, was really eye-opening because 
there was people in there telling this young guy like what he needed to do when he got out. Like, man, you, you don't need to be in here. You need to start a business. And he's like, what the fuck am I going to start with, you know, a record? And he's like, man, start a landscaping business. He's like, anybody can cut grass. He's like, if you ain't got the skill to paint or do sheetrock or nothing like that, he's like, start cutting grass, man, get you a grass cutting business, build it up. I mean, they're, they were supporting each other. They were trying to figure out things to do to better themselves when they got out. Um, and that was just, it was really eye-opening because you you wouldn't believe, and I'm, you know better than anybody, there's a lot of smart people in jail. Like just the things that they come up with, They some of the air vents was coming down, it was cold, so they would wet the toilet paper and throw it up to block the air vents. It would eventually throw enough of it up there and make a block and seal it. So, I mean, these people would come out with some interesting ways to, to do shit in there. And, you know, I'm just listening. I didn't get involved too much in the conversation. And finally, one of them asked me, is like, man, you got some some badass tattoo work. And I'm like, thank you. I appreciate it. And they said, who's your artist? So I told them my artist, everybody in there knew him. Like he had done a lot of them, apparently. And so that kind of just got it in the conversation. Like I said, nobody fucked with me in there. It was nobody said anything. You know, I'm obviously thinking worst case scenario, but it was very different. Like, obviously, no place I'd ever want to be but like not the worst place I've ever been, if that makes any sense, you know? And so I make it through the night next morning. Um, you know, I'm getting bond. I know I did attempt to eat whatever that breakfast was in there that morning was not very good. I could not survive off prison food. I know that now. Like I'm a, I'm a good, I'm a, I love to eat, man. And that, that food was fucking awful. And they finally come and they let me get out. Well, the guys in there knew I was getting out and they ran up to me when I got, I was like, man, can I have your, this can i have that can i have the toilet paper can i have the toothbrush can i have the body wash i mean that it was like it was like i just gave somebody a hundred dollar bill you know i mean it was that's how bad they were wanting i'm like man i'll have whatever the fuck y'all want i don't care and so i gave it all away and i got out and that again later on i thought about that just how much like things like that mean to people in prison like an extra roll of toilet paper or an extra thing of toothpaste or an extra toothbrush or an extra cup i mean that's like that's a big deal in there for those guys and, you know, it really, when I left out, I really think I'm like, man, people that don't know what goes on in here are really uninformed about the situation. So that was kind of like the seed that I knew eventually I wanted to do something to spread awareness about this. I, I didn't know exactly how I was going to do it at that point, but that was kind of the, the seed. So I get out. And obviously the first step now is I know I'm being charged with murder. They're wanting 25 to life. Um, I'm trying to process all this. I go, I meet with the lawyer. Part of my bond conditions getting out was can't have any weapons. Um, I'm on house arrest. I can't leave the state. Uh, can't leave. I can't even think. Only thing I could really do was doctors, lawyers, church. And that was it. So I meet with the lawyer. We kind of start formulating a plan. I'm supposed to go back to work that Monday after all this. Um, I get out of, obviously I knew they got, they knew I got locked up. I go back to work and when I go to clock in or whatever, they say, uh, you got to go over across the street, see the manager. I was kind of nervous, but at the same time, I knew he was going to want an explanation for what was going on, or at least a, an update on the situation. So we go over there and I kind of tell him a little bit about what's going on. And he's like, wait, unfortunately, man, due to these circumstances, he said, we got to let you go. And, you know, I made about eighty, ninety thousand dollars $90,000 a year at this job. It's a pretty good paying job where I'm at. And that's just like another kick in the balls, bro. I already got murder charge kicking at me. Now I've lost my job. I'm unemployed. I don't have any money. 
And I just kind of shake my head and I'm just like, bro, like, seriously, like I didn't do anything wrong. He, he even tells me, he's like, I can't imagine what you're going through. And I'm just like, well, fuck, imagine getting fired on top of it. You know, I mean, you're not helping the situation, but they fired me. And luckily um, it was a good company in the sense that once a year they would give you a portion of money into your profit share. So I'd been with them about 15 years at this point. I'd accumulated over a hundred thousand dollars in my 401k at that point in time. I couldn't dive into it as long as I was as long as I was employed by the company, you know, but once I got fired, then that became available for me to dive into. So I withdrew what I had out, which is around about, I think, like 70, 80,000, something at the time after the taxes, you know, the taxes eat up a lot of that and early withdrawal penalties and shit like that. So I get what I got. I pay my mom back. I pay my wife back for them to pay off their credit cards. I paid back my mom or actually my dad. He came up with the bond. The bond that they gave me was one hundred and fifty thousand. That was it. Relatively low. Um, it was the lowest they could give for both charges. It was one hundred thousand for the murder charge. It was fifty thousand for the weapons charge. So it was like thirteen grand, I think, for the bond. Paid my dad back the bond money, um, and then I paid off. I think I had a little bit left on my car at the time. Paid that off. I was trying to get rid of any bills that way because I didn't know how long I was going to be unemployed, and so I get that squared away, get that taken care of. The lawyer's working. He's like, just try to relax best you can. We got it. We'll start handling. So first thing on my agenda is I got to find a job. So I go to this company that was hired for welders. It was a, a trash company that was like repairing the, the big dumpster trash cans that you see on construction sites. You know, they get dented in, they get beat up, have to cut out pieces, put in new pieces, weld them up. I've never had to disclose anything about felonies because I never had any. So I'm not sure if I should tell them or if I should not because it's pending. I decided to tell him and I'm like, look, man, this is what I'm going through. And he was very cool about it. He was like, look, he's like, I studied a little criminal law while I was in college. He's like, don't sound like you got anything to worry about. He's like, but don't bother me. He's like, you let me know. I'm good with it. He's like, we'll still offer you the job. Compensation was a lot less than what I was accustomed to. But the biggest thing was I had a job. And so I was excited. I come home and I was I'm like, you know, all right, well, at least I got a job. I got some income coming in. So that's just one thing off my shoulders. You know, they run it through corporate, which the corporate was out in Arizona. And uh, I guess they ran my background. Well, it showed up as a pending murder charge. They pulled the offer. Don't. So now it's just like another kick. Bam. I'm down. Like, so now I know. If anywhere that I go to is going to run my background, I'm not going to be able to, you know, get the job. So that X's out a lot of places that you can try to get employment that's going to run your background. I happened to see an ad not long after that for a welder with a sign company. I'm just like, all right, you know, this might be something I can do. And it was like, you know, welding experience plus, you know, fun environment, build signs, some travel, like to travel around to businesses and all this so I go in, I meet the guy. Guy was very cool. It was a family owned business. So not like a big corporation. And I'm like, well, that's a good sign. You know, I'm just dealing with the owner right now directly. And I tell him basically, I'm like, look, I want to get off of the swing shift. You know, the, the company that I was with, it was swing shift nights. I was like, I'd like to do something days. I painted a picture as though I wanted a different lifestyle as far as work. Cause it was still a pretty close proximity to me leaving. And only, at this point it only been like maybe two or three weeks. And he was like, well, I can't, you know, match the salary you were making. I said, I don't need you to. I said, I just want straight days. And so we negotiated a pretty fair salary and I came to work. 
So at this point, things are starting to look a little bit better. I do have a job. There was no background. He hired me on the spot. I told him I can, I can start whenever you want me to. So I started the next week. So a job's good. That's one thing off the, the list I need to worry about. The next step in the legal process was we had a preliminary hearing. Now, this is where they find if there's enough evidence to carry it on over to trial. So we go in, we're prepped for it. Now, preliminary hearings, I'm, I'm sure you know, it's not like a trial. You can't introduce evidence per se. The state issues why they're going to arrest, why they brought charges against you. And then the judge with that will make a ruling whether there's enough to, to move forward to trial. And my lawyer obliterated this female detective that was over. I mean, just made her look stupid on the stand. And when it was all done, like the judge was this close, man, from throwing it out. Like she even said, she told that cop, she said, there's really not a lot here. But given the situation, I'm going to bind it to trial. So I knew at that point we were going to trial, or at least that was the, the next step. So we leave out of there and I, you know, talking to the lawyer, I'm like, all right, what's next? He said, well, I kind of figured they were going to, you know, go to trial. He's like, he said, we almost had it. He's like, she was thinking about it. He's like, so that's a good sign. He said, if the judge without hearing any of the evidence is thinking about it, just off what they charge you for, he's like, that's a good sign. He said, it's not like, yeah, you're, you know, we're going to trial. There's enough. He said, she didn't even say there was enough. She said there was not a lot. He's like, so that's a good sign. But he said, what we're going to do, we're going to file a motion. It's called a Duncan hearing. And it's, uh, you know, self-defense, castle law. That's what we're going to go with. And he's like, if we win this Duncan hearing, there is no trial. They, you can't, you don't go to trial. So that's the focus of what we're on right now. That's kind of the mindset of my lawyer, what we're going to do. And he's like, this isn't going to be something we're going to do next week. He's like, we only have one shot at this. He's like, and if we lose it, he said, then we will go to trial. He's like, so it's going to take a little bit of time. I'm just letting you know, be prepared mentally that, you know, this is going to take some time to get all our ducks in a row because it's very important that we win this when we do it. And so I'm like, look, man, you're the lawyer, you know, it's what I'm paying you for. Do what you got to do. And so everything's going good at this time. Working at the sign company, me and my wife are obviously as stressful, but in a weird way, it brought us together closely. Like she had my back. I had hers. Obviously, in the neighborhood, we're dealing with people talking and whispering and rumors and saying shit that wasn't true. My son was even subjected to that a little bit of kids talking to him in class and stuff like that. My daughter was a senior in high school. Obviously, it's the talk of the, the neighborhood, you know. And uh, so we're dealing with all that. But we're just, you know, we're like, fuck them. They don't know the truth. They don't know what really happened. Nobody knows what really happened but us. And we just... We, we bonded a whole lot tighter than we had ever had before at that point, if that makes any sense. And I go into work one day and the boss man looks at me and he's like, man, we got a job at your uh, former employer. And I'm just like, oh, who's that? And he said, Newcore Steel. I'm just kind of like, oh, yeah. And he's like, yeah, we're doing one of their big LED boards out there. He said, they're changing. They want to go full LEDs. Like, we got that contract. I was like, oh, okay, cool. Sure enough. They come to me uh, right before it was over, and he said, you want to go out there and install it? I was like, man, you know, not really. You know, I drove out there a lot in my day. I, I got no uh, no desire to go out there to, to tell you the truth. <laughs> so I thought maybe I kind of skated out of that, you know. Well, the guys that went out there, they're talking, different people here and there. Yeah, we got one of our guys in our shop used to work out here. Yeah, who's that? Uh, Wade, Wade Williamson. Oh, yeah, yeah, I know Wade. How's everything with uh, his situation? I don't know what you mean. So, but wait, you know, you got arrested, shot a guy, huh? Shot a guy. And then it started. So the next day I come in and the guy's like, 
I heard something about you the other day. This is like my boss, like the shop boss, you know, not the owner, but the shop boss. He's like, I heard a little story about you the other day. And I'm like, oh, yeah. And he's like, yeah, he's like somebody out of Nucor. And so I kind of told him what the what the gist was. I didn't know if he's about to fire me. I didn't know what had happened because I never told anybody, um, which is another reason why I kept that chip name. Because if you searched on Facebook for Wade Williamson, a lot of these non-flattering articles were going to pop up because that's my governor name. But if you search for Chip Williamson, you got my profile. and You didn't see a lot of that. So I went back to using Chip. I, was, I told everybody, I was like, call me Chip, go by Chip, Facebook Chip, search Chip or whatever. Because you know, that's what everybody does now. You get somebody that you just meet, you Facebook them, you Instagram them. So as long as they're searching for Chip Williamson, they're not pulling up articles on Wade Williams. So that was kind of helpful that a lot of people knew me by that other name. But he didn't fire me. I mean, he didn't say anything. You know, you could tell it kind of changed his opinion of hit me a little bit. I don't necessarily know if it was bad because we're still friends, but I guess it's just you find out that happened to somebody you didn't know it before. I guess you're going to be a little weird around them. The owner never spoke to me about it. I don't know if he knew. I know he had to know because anytime we ever got a job to do anything like at a base, there's a lot of Navy bases and Army bases down here. If we had a job there, everybody had to have their background run to go on those jobs. He never asked me to go on any of those jobs. Everywhere else, he would ask me to go. So I know that he knew that there was some some reason why I couldn't go on these jobs. But I think I had worked there long enough. He could tell that I was a good employee. I showed up. I did my job. It wasn't like he had to worry about me doing anything. But he never spoke about it, and I never spoke about it. And that was anxiety in and of itself, let alone what I'm battling with with this court not knowing if he's going to call me in there one day. He's like, man, you didn't tell me about this. We're going to have to let you go. We don't want you here, whatever. It never happened, but it still didn't stop that anxiety eating at me every day. I mean, almost give me an ulcer, you know, trying to figure out what's going on. I hope you're enjoying the podcast. Here's a word from our sponsor, Manscaped. Cannonballs. This summer, it's not about the size of those cannonballs. Thank God, as I can barely see them. <laughs> well, they were big enough to do the job, weren't they, Jen? We kicked... It's about making a splash with our friends at Manscaped. Prep for barbecue season by making sure your grill master has the hottest dog seen this summer. When you're at the cookout, let the meat speak for itself with Manscaped's performance package 4.0. It's time to get ready and not sweaty. The Manscaped performance package 4.0 has everything you need to guarantee you'll have the most mouth-watering treat at the party. They have built the ultimate bundle for your summer grooming. So, get 20% off and free shipping with the code SEAN20, S-H-A-U-N-20 at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com and use code SEAN20. Manscaped, the perfect way to get your patties sizzling hot this summer. Thanks for supporting our sponsor. Back to the podcast. And I'm there, this is 2017. Uh, all of this happened, like I said, in April. I probably got that job in like June 2017. Uh, we go in in 2018, still trying to figure out, you know, the best case. We fly in, best case how to handle this. We fly in an expert that had worked with my lawyer uh, from New York. He was a CSI forensics investigator. He come in, and if you've ever seen the... Uh, the shows like CSI, they do like the bullet trackings 
with the uh, lasers to tell you where people were standing, you know, when the, the shots were fired. It travels the bullet path. He set up everything in the house. He went from where it hit on the, the above the dog kennel back to the refrigerator, which then bounces back to where I was standing. So it paints a really vivid picture that corroborated my story of where I was standing. The other one to the left of it, he couldn't really put an origin there because it went into water bottles, um, which, by the way, like I said, I found that bullet after I got out of jail, that water bottle. We had to call them to come out there and pick that up. They didn't, the investigation team didn't even find it. Uh, so that lets you know the thoroughness of the investigation to begin with. Uh, he couldn't put an origin on that one, but it still, we still had a general direction of, of where it went. Um, so it painted a picture of exactly where I was when this happened. One of our investigators, we put a white t-shirt on him and we painted a mark on his shirt where one of the exit wounds was and one of the entrance wounds was. And that was a little telling because you had a higher entrance wound and a lower exit wound. Well, how does that happen? You know, I wasn't holding a gun like that. It happened because he was like this. He was hunched over coming at me. So you're going to have a higher entry and a lower exit, which explained exactly what I said happened. I'm like, he swung, he hit me. He was already coming back. I shot. So that explained why the bullet passed. Everything lined up. Everything was pretty much telling them that I was spot on with how I told him it happened. It was all painted a very vivid picture. We even put him in the photograph and we had the line going like right into where the entrance wound was on the shirt. So my lawyer even said, he just, he's like, that's all I need. He said, that paints a picture of you. You're literally in a corner, not just metaphorically speaking. You're in a corner. He's charging at you. It lines up with what you said. I'm good. I'm good. This is what I need. This is what I want. And so I'm like, you know, if you're good, I'm good. And that's how we went with it. And then COVID hits. So nobody's going to court. Nobody's getting a hearing. They reached out to him and there's like, hey, do you want to do a Zoom or a Skype or something like that? He's like, no, he's like, that's not how I operate. He's like, I go into court. He doesn't buy into any of that. So we dragged this on through 2020. Um, still, it's. I'm still nervous about it. Um, but I'm trying to figure out something to do to kind of block it out of my mind. I start listening to podcasts at this point. I start listening to wrongful conviction podcasts. I start listening to the Central Park Five. I start listening to Khalif Browder. Um, I start listening to the West Memphis Three. That kind of put me, I didn't even listen to podcasts before this. That started sending me down a rabbit hole. That kind of branched into true crime, which became something I would do throughout the day to help the day go by. And I just got engulfed in all this. And I'm just like, I would, I might think about doing this. You know, this is interesting stuff. And I didn't do it at the time. I was still with the sign company, but it was in the back of my mind. Well, once COVID got bad enough, they actually laid people off from that job. Uh, so again, I find myself unemployed, still got this hanging over my head. So I'm back to square one again, trying to find employment. Luckily, found a job that was hiring, welding. I go in, I'm back at that dilemma. Do I tell somebody? Do I not tell somebody? Because again, I live, even though I kept that job, it was still just in the pit of my stomach, like a knot, not knowing if they were going to know or find out. So this guy was from Texas. And I'm like, you know what? He's from Texas. I got a feeling if anybody understands, he might understand. So I tell him. 
And he's just like, dude, he's like, you didn't do nothing I wouldn't do. He's like, I ain't got no problem with it. He's like, you were straight shooter with me. I appreciate that. It took a man to tell me that. You know, yeah, I ain't got no issues with it. So I was just like, that was just like a weight lifted off. I'm like, I can go into work and not have to worry about it. And he knows. So if I got to miss a day for this or that, you know, he's cool with it. And it was just like a load just lifted off me. Well, we're still not getting into court. We're still not going anywhere. It's kind of at a standstill. They did release me to go to sporting events with my son because my son was getting to the age now. He started playing football, organized football, and I actually became a coach. Um, I was helping because I was there anyway. And so I started coaching youth football. I still coach now, uh, even after everything's over, because I, I love it. I love working with the kids. And it's kind of a passion of mine. My son's now moved on into high school football. But, you know, it's still kind of nothing's really going on with the the case itself. Um, it's weighing on me every day. I mean, not just like walking around with a giant fucking piano over your head, not knowing when somebody's going to cut the rope. And, you know, I don't know if it's going to land on me. I don't know what. We're not talking a five-year bid here. We're talking life is what they're shooting for. They're talking life in prison. So I can't even enjoy a moment of my life in the free world without even it immediately being followed by a negative one. So my daughter graduates high school. They grant me permission to go to the graduation, but I got to come right back home. I can't go out to eat. can't go celebrate. can't do anything. I got to come right back home. I'm watching her walk across the stage, Sean, and I'm like, I'm excited. I'm happy for her. She's fixing to start her life. And immediately I get sad because I'm thinking, you know, will I be here to watch my son walk across the stage or will I be in jail? You can't enjoy one damn thing without it. The thought of, is this going to be the last time I get to experience this? Is this going to be my last Thanksgiving, Christmas, birthday? It's It became it became a lot. So to help combat that depression and just getting lost in my thoughts, I did ultimately start a podcast. And I, I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And I was like, you know, I thought true crime, but apparently everybody in America had that same idea around COVID. I mean, just how many podcasts come out of true crime around COVID. So I was like, I got to do something just to a little bit different, you know, not just true crime, because number one, it takes a lot of research uh, to do a good podcast. As I'm, I'm sure, you know, doing research and to do put in your your best efforts, it's a lot. And, you know, then you have your main cases that have already been covered a thousand times. So to get cases nobody's ever heard of, that takes work. And I was a one man show. I didn't have anybody helping me. I didn't have any experience. So I decided I was going to call it crime and entertainment. That way, that entertainment aspect I could really interview anybody I wanted. I didn't have to do true crime. I could have a wrestler on. I could have a, a another podcaster. I could have a drug smuggler or a mobster or whatever. And I've had all those guys. Me and you have interviewed a lot of the same people, uh, like Michael Thompson and, you know, um, Michael Emmett, uh, you know, a ton of people that are, are similar. And so that's how it started. Now, I didn't originally start doing interviews. I was doing it with a friend of mine from high school. We covered a very interesting case called The Boys on the Tracks about the two boys that got run over in Mena, Arkansas, that are tied into a guy that would go on to be president later on. Uh, very detailed case. I'm sure you probably heard of it. Very interesting case. Um, you know, we covered the poltergeist curse. And it just, it really, it became like a second job that I enjoyed that filled up a lot of my time. And it slowly progressed to where I was doing interviews. I interviewed Lila Brancato from A Bronx Tale. Um, and then it kind of slowly just started gaining the steam the guy that started it with me said that he was kind of good. He didn't really want to make this a, as big a gig as it was turning into. 
So I kind of took the reins and ran with it myself. And, you know, nobody knew about everything that I was going through. Nobody had a clue. I never talked about it on the show, but I knew when things got straightened out that I could use this platform to help bring awareness. And so little by little, um, show just starts gaining a little steam and I meet up with Anthony Ruggiano, who I think you recently had on your show. Great guy. And we kind of come up with some things we're going to do. I have them on just for a regular podcast, but we have some ideas we want to do in studio. So they're like, Hey, can you come up to New York? And I'm just like, I'm not supposed to be leaving the state, but I didn't tell them that. I'm like, let me check and see if I can get it lined up. So I called my lawyer and I'm like, look, man, we're, uh, I got this podcast going. I started, I said, it's starting to, you know, gain a little bit. I was like, it actually is a job and, you know, I'm getting paid, not a lot, but, you know, get slightly. Um, so it's income. I'm not just, I'm not bullshitting. I said, can I get permission to go to New York? And he come back and he said, yeah, they gave you permission. He said, you just got to let them know when you're leaving, where you're going to be staying and when you're going to get back. And I'm like, all right, I'll do it. And this whole time now, I don't have an anklet on. They never gave me an anklet. I never even met my bondsman. Like I didn't, I have no, I know the business, but that's it. I don't, I never had to call anybody. I never had to check in. I did on the first trip have to let them know where, I, when I was going and when I was staying. And, but other than that, like I never talked with anybody. I never had an anklet on, you know, technically they didn't know if I was at my house or not, but I was always paranoid that somebody was watching. So I was kind of, you know, I would abide by the, uh, what I was supposed to be doing. The little workaround that I had was I signed up to do Postmates. And it's kind of like Uber, but going, you're not physically riding anybody around. You might go pick up something and drop it off. And so I put that on my phone. If I did have to go do something, I would put it on there as I was looking for a job. And then I would go do it. That way, if I got pulled over, I could say I was working. So that was kind of a little workaround I could do to kind of run errands that I needed to do. But, you know, luckily it never got, it never was an issue. It never was really anything. And they, he did allow me to go to New York. So I fly up there. We do a couple segments in the studio, uh, came out really well there. I think one of the segments we did was called behind the gangster on his channel. We detailed from the movie Goodfellas, Tommy Simone, which was played by Joe Pesci. And we compared and contrasted like real life characters to how they were in the movie. You know, was it, was it true? Was it not true? And it done well, man. It got like 80,000 views on his channel, which was, which was very well. And so he's like, man, we got to do some more. So he's like, can you come back down at a later date? I'm just like, I don't know if they're going to let me go back again. And so I asked the lawyer, I'm like, man, I got a, you know opportunity to go back. I was like, you think they'll let me go back? And he's like, hold on a minute. He's like, let me just see where we're at. Because at this point, the original solicitor that was over the case had left the solicitor's office. So they had a new one come in. It was a woman. Now, I was getting notified by email about all these. And she was only there for about two or three months. And then she left. So it was a third solicitor that was coming in. He said, I don't know much about this new solicitor. He's like, let me just see where he's at with this. He's like, cause we're going on five years. This was like four years and six months that this whole thing had been going on and nothing. We had the preliminary hearing two months after the, the shooting and that's it. Nothing else. Like I, we had brought our investigator down, but that was just stuff we did. And other than that, that was it. It was nothing. I would go sometimes six, eight months and not even talk to the lawyer. Cause there was no updates. We would get things in like sled reports come in to where it verified that he was, uh, three times the legal limit on alcohol that he was on steroids. He had shot steroids that night. Um, he was on prescription pills for his diagnosed PTSD. Uh, all, 
all those stuff was coming in throughout this whole process. And it just, he asked him, he was like, look, he said, we're ready to get this behind us. He's like, we want a Duncan hearing or an immunity hearing based on the grounds of a castle law and self-defense. He said, we're ready to get this done. He's like, cause he's got to go back to New York and he don't want to having to keep asking for permission. Like, when can we, when can we set something up to go ahead and do this? And he's like, well, I'll see what I can do. I'll see if I can get it on the schedule. But he's like, in the meantime, tell him he can go back. And so this was sep- like uh, almost September. I went back for a second time, done some more stuff, come back. And my lawyer told me, he said, look, he said, I got an idea. He said, I'm going to call him and tell him that we're going to lay it all on the table. We're going to give him everything we got. We're going to give him a PowerPoint detailing on why the reason they charged you was bullshit. We're going to lay everything out we got. He said, I think we have such a powerful case, Wade, that he's going to see that there's really no sense in even going to trial. And I was like, he said, it's a risk because we're showing our hand. He said, but the hand is so good that we think that they're going to realize that there's no chance that they they don't have a chance in chasing this and chasing a conviction. And I was like, fuck it, let's do it. And still there. Okay. Um, I'm just changing the battery in the camera. Just keep going. You're fine. You're doing great. All right. So I told him, I'm like, yeah, you know, we're good to go. Um, let's, let's do it. So we set up a meeting to where we have to go to the police station and we're actually talking with the solicitor. We're talking with his number two and one of the investigators. So we have to fly the, our expert from New York back down. Now, mind you, every time this guy comes down, it's, thousands. Like I got to pay for his airfare. I got to pay for his travel. I got to pay for his time. I got to pay for everything he's putting together. Um, so it's, again, these costs, they didn't just stop with that 60 grand. They kept adding up, you know, they had to get files. I got to pay for it. They had to fly this guy down now twice. I had to pay for it. So that's a steady racking up bills that are not cheap getting all this done. And he puts together a PowerPoint, the details. Okay. Well, you charged him you know, with this, this is one of the reasons you said you charged him. You said there was no signs of a struggle because I told him we wrestled around for a minute before this happened. He takes arriving officer's body cam. The first guy that came into the house, he zooms in. You can see there's a knocked over shot glass on the floor in the kitchen in between the stove and the refrigerator on the floor. You can see there's another knocked over like Manhattan glass. It's what we were shooting whiskey out of like a big rocks glass. So pretty heavy, you know, not, not something light. You can just brush lead tip over that's knocked over on the counter he's like these aren't things that are just normally here without being a struggle he's like i doubt this guy's glasses laying on the floor this glass is pretty heavy you'll see it when we go to his house it's knocked over on the counter he's like so obviously this is signs of a struggle you guys said you've seen no signs of a struggle he's like this is body cam footage from the first arriving officer he's like so it's clearly there was a struggle they tried to say that there was no blood transfer on me which led them to believe we were not in close proximity to each other. Now I had on a white shirt, even a long sleeve white shirt. There was no blood transfer because there was no blood. As I mentioned earlier, there was no blood on the floor. You could, we got it up with one paper towel. I never seen blood. When I lifted his shirt up, I never seen blood. One of the main reasons is these were, like I said, steel metal jackets. They were through and through. I'm sure the blood alcohol level probably played a part. Um, but you're not going to get transfer, especially in the in the chest area like that. And he was wearing three shirts. He was wearing three layer, layers of clothing. One of them was actually like a moisture wicking material, like a Under Armour type 
you know, a, a piece of clothing. So you're not going to get that transfer, you know, and I forgot the verbiage of it. I think like the, what comes out back to you is, is forward spatter. What goes out or what comes out to you is actually back spatter. What comes out and goes the other way is forward spatter. It's like flip flop, but I didn't have anything on me. And he put up these tests to where it's like, you know, you're not always going to get spatter. It, no matter how close you are, he said, you sometimes you don't even get it if it's a headshot, which is going to be the most extreme case. He's like, sometimes you're, everything's going to go back. He's like, it just depends on the caliber of the weapon. It depends on the bullet. So he's like, you're not always going to get spatter. So the fact that there was no blood on him doesn't really mean anything. What they were trying to do was paint this as he was further away from me. And I just pulled out the gun and shot him. Well, the reason that that kind of fucked him was because I explained to you this kitchen wasn't very big. So you back him up any closer than he was, he's going to be up against the refrigerator. He's going to be next to it. He wasn't. He was laying right there where he landed. He was a, you know, a foot away from it. So the fact he could, you can't have it both ways. You can't have him so close that, you know, everything is lined up how he's talking. But if he's further back, then it's going to be obvious because he's going to be leaning up against the refrigerator. And also a key thing, when the bullets come out, they made a V. They had time to separate. One hit the refrigerator door. The other one hit the water on the side of the refrigerator. We were close proximity. When the bullets come through, they had that time to separate. Had he been further back, they would have come through side by side. They wouldn't have had time to separate. So the evidence really went against their theory. One of the third ones was they said, you know, he said he done life-saving measures, but there was no evidence of that. Well, when they come in, the guy's laying there. You can clearly see there's a towel on his chest. Like nobody else went and got that. There was nobody else in my house. He damn sure didn't go get it. I was the one that put it there. So again, that was like, you know, you can't really say he didn't try to do what 911 told him to do. He done everything he was told to do. And you know, the guy, you could tell they were taking it in. Like, this is obviously the first time they've seen all this. They've got what the police give them. Um, you could tell they were taking it in. And then the next step, they was going to go see what evidence they had on me. I couldn't uh, go in there. I couldn't go in the evidence room. So I went on to my house and I'm waiting for them to come to my house. I set everything up as close as I could to how everything was that night. I set the same rocks glass out. We cleared off the refrigerator that we had pictures on. We kept the same refrigerator with the markings because I had a feeling at some point that was going to be key in all this. So I kept it. Um, it didn't go through the refrigerator, so it was still serviceable, but usable. And I was sitting in my house. The investigator got back to my house quicker than everybody else. And I asked him, I'm like, so what do they have on me? He's like, nothing. And I'm like, what do you see? What they show you? He said, they showed us what they took from you which was like your gun, your clothes, your computer, and that's it. And we were just all kind of looking at each other like, I mean, where's your evidence? Like, do you have evidence of why you charged him? Like, why you think this was a calculated murder? Like, you know, and even with that, murder is like forethought. You put, you planned it. Obviously, I didn't plan this. Like, that guy reached out to me to want to talk and me. I didn't reach out to him. And I didn't know we were coming back to my house. That was his idea. And so he was like, there was just nothing there. He's like, we were just kind of shaking our heads. Like, you know, they don't have anything. So they come to my house, the solicitor, one of the investigators, the solicitors, number two. And I walk them through everything that happened that night, right where we were at, how we were locked up, where we were standing, where I shot, where he landed, showed them the glasses. I still had those same glasses. I was like, here, put this in your hand. 
and I put it in his hand. You could tell it was a heavy glass. Like it's one of them sets you would buy, like the nice sets you put your good whiskey in and stuff. And you could just tell that he really took it all in. Like he, it wasn't like he was just there as a, you know, a lip service or what have you. He was really taking it in. And so we, we finish it up. We wrap it up. They leave. I sit around the kitchen with the lawyer. We talk a little bit. We talk about, you know, what's the next step. His thinking was, he said, I don't know if he'll drop it. He said he may try to take it to an immunity hearing just because this wasn't his case. And, you know, to try to say, well, look, I tried, but I wasn't left the greatest situation or this wasn't mine. He didn't know if he would just completely drop it. And so that was kind of where we were at. We're waiting on this whole situation. And this was around, like I said, September, October, or all of September rolled by. Didn't hear anything. This was at the beginning of September. October starts. It's about to roll by. Didn't uh, didn't hear anything. I was actually supposed to go back to New York for a third time, right around the uh, first month of uh, November. And I got sick. I got the flu. And I was at work. I was feeling awful. Probably went about 12 o'clock. My phone rings and it's my lawyer. It's been five years. So, you know, in the beginning, I would always get a pit in my stomach whenever I would see him call because I know it's news about something. He didn't just call to bullshit, you know, but I never thought that that was going to be the day that that call would come that I was waiting on that I've been waiting five years for. And I answered it and he's like, Wade, how you doing? I said, actually, I feel pretty bad, man. I said, I'm sick. I didn't know I had the flu at that time. And he said, well, he said, I got some news that's going to make you feel better. He said, you're a free man. And I was just like, what now? And he said, case is dismissed. Charges are dropped. Your record will soon be expunged. He's like, you're a free man, brother. And I just broke down in tears, man. I just, I was crying. I was happy. I was sick, you know, but it was like, that was the one thing that somebody could have told me to make me feel better. And I just thanked him. I thanked him for everything he did. I thanked him for all his hard work. And I was just so emotional. And I was able to kind of, I mean, I'm getting emotional now just talking about it. And I had to call my wife and I was crying. She thought something was wrong. You know, she thought I was hurt. And I just told her, I was like, it's over. I said, it's finally over. And, you know, I spoke on the phone with her for a bit, talked with her. I called my mom. I called my dad. I called all the people that had supported me, you know, through this whole thing. Because I knew in the back of my mind that, like, if you get defeated by it, it'll get it'll make things worse. So I knew I was going to get through it, but I was tired of going through it, if that makes any sense. And just to be able to make that call to tell everybody it was over, man, it was it was unreal. And it was like the biggest weight you could imagine had gotten lifted off of me. My people at work, most of them had knew about it. So they come up and they embrace me. They hug me. And I mean, it was just the best feeling in the world. And with that, I kind of started like, okay, well, now with this podcast that I've been doing, I want to bring light to wrongful convictions. I want to bring light to people that have been put in jail that shouldn't have been put in jail because that could have very easily happened to me. You know, I'm very grateful that I didn't spend really but two days incarcerated, which was which was wonderful. But at the same time, like I spent five years worrying, like if I'm going to be put in there for life. But some people didn't get that. You know, they got in there and they didn't get out for 17 years, five years. I interviewed a guy named Andre Brown that was in jail for 25 years. Um, recently just got out last December on an overturned conviction. So I started reaching out to a lot of these guys to come on the show. I was like Jeffrey Deskovic and Andre Brown and Russ Faria. 
you know, I still done the other stuff that I was doing as well, but I wanted to make sure that I incorporated that into my program because that's what so many people don't understand. Someone can be innocent, but if they're charged with a crime and they don't have a lawyer, a good lawyer, a paid lawyer to fight for them, you're forced to go with a public defender. That public defender, most of the time, probably don't even care, but they've got a tremendous backlog. They don't have the resources to fight for you like a dedicated lawyer. So they're going to try to get you a plea bargain. You know, you're going to probably take that plea because if you're looking at 15 years and they say, well, maybe we can get you nine good behavior. Maybe you have to do five or six, something along those lines. People are going to take that because they don't want to spend more time in jail than they have to. Then they do their time. Luckily, if they get out, then you got a felony. And then it's harder to get a job. It's harder to stay employed. And it just becomes a vicious cycle. Lots of times people recommit crimes and they have to go back. And I was just very fortunate that I did not have that happen to me. And so many people it did happen to. So I wanted to incorporate that a lot into my show to, to get that word out because people just don't think about it because it hasn't happened to them yet. I was one of these people that thought if they arrested somebody, they probably done something wrong. Because why would the police arrest them if they didn't do anything wrong? In my case, I believe the police arrested me because they felt like they needed to. The community that I was in was like, you know, I'm not going to say it was a ritzy community by any means, but nothing like that had happened at the time. I felt like that they were kind of pressured in them doing it, you know, because they couldn't let somebody get shot and nothing be done about it. And then once they arrested me, I believe they realized that they didn't really have anything. But then if they dropped it immediately, they looked stupid. So they sat on it. And they sat on it for five years until finally they just dismissed it. And it's like nobody's going to go print an article saying, oh, yeah, by the way, they dismissed the article or they dismissed the charges on that guy. They're going to leave all those articles when they charge me with murder and call me a murderer and all this. They're, they're not going to go back and retract all that shit. And, you know, that's just one of the many things that you deal with after something like this happens. And, you know, there's really no way you can repair it. It's out there. There's nothing you can do. The only thing you can do is go on platforms like, you know, I'm doing now with you, like I did with Danny on Concrete or Matt with his program that has a wide audience to let them know, like, look, this happens. It could happen to you. And especially you would think I'm in a state like South Carolina that is very favorable to gun owners. And it still happened to me. And I've done everything right by the letter of the law. I was in my home. You know, I was legally able to carry. I'd had CWP. I'd done everything by the book. It was still charged. Name was put in the paper. I lost my job, had to empty out my 401k to pay a lawyer, you know, all together between bonds and everything else, lawyer fees, probably about $100,000 total that I had to pay just to prove that I was right and that I was telling the truth. And, you know, I'm not, I can't get any of that back. I can't go and, you know, get that back. It's, and that's the other shitty part about this whole thing is it's not necessarily malice. Like they didn't, they didn't plant evidence against me or whatever. They just didn't do a good job in the investigation. So incompetence isn't really the same thing as malice, which is, which makes, it's a scary thought knowing that you got people in positions like detectives that can do this. Now, one of the things that I will say in that preliminary hearing, the detective over the case lied under oath a few times. Um, it was small details, but she still lied. Like she said that when I came out the house, when I surrendered, that I locked myself out of the house. That wasn't true. I never even shut the door. Like the door was still wide open. 
she said that she had found vials of uh, steroids at the, the other home where the guy had used the steroids. She said she found one vial when there was actually two. She filled out the report that there was two. I mean, you know, she lied about four times that we can document that she lied about um, on, on the stand under oath. They're protected. There's nothing you can do. That prosecutorial immunity, there's nothing you can do. There's no recourse to get any of this back. And so it's basically like, you know, we're going to charge you with all this. We're going to put it, put as much stress on you as humanly possible. Empty out your savings. Oh, my bad. Yeah, you're right. Case dismissed. And then they wash their hands of it because there's nothing that they don't have to worry about that shit. They go home every night. They don't have to worry about it. And, you know, I couldn't tell you the, the peace that came over me finally when all this was was done. And it's kind of like now it's like, all right, it's behind me. Do I wish I still had that hundred thousand in my bank account? Absolutely. But at the same time, I look at it as like it is a very expensive lesson that I learned to a you just got to be mindful of every situation. It doesn't matter if you're right. It's changed my outlook on the judicial system very much. It's changed my outlook to cops in general. And they're good cops. I have a brother in law who's a cop who's a great guy. And I told him, I was like, I'm no offense to you, man, but like. I don't look at cops the same way anymore because I feel like any person with half-ass training should have been able to piece this situation together. You knew that this guy was upset because he was getting the boot. You know, you knew I had never been in trouble before. You knew this guy had violent temper. You knew he had PTSD. You knew he had was on drugs. You knew he was on steroids. I wasn't on none of that shit. And you can't piece this together that he was the one with the problem. Nine times out of 10, when something happens, whoever's where they're not supposed to be, is the one with the problem. You know, had I been at their house or somewhere else, if this had happened in a bar or something like that, I could have totally seen him going this route, but I was in my house and that should definitely have been covered under the castle law. And it wasn't. And, you know, like I said, again, I'm extremely grateful that I didn't have to spend time in prison. Like so many unfortunate people have, but it's still, it's, it's a very shitty situation for someone to have to go through. And the stress that I feel like I've probably been aged 10 years, you know, in five, every year was double, if not triple, um, some worse than others. But at the end of the day, you know, we made it through it. And, and throughout this whole thing, there's a quick story I'll share with you. Around 2020, um, I have a Husky, a Siberian Husky is our family dog. And two houses down from me, these people had a pit bull. And that pit bull had bit my son um months prior it wasn't a nasty bite they were playing basketball and it kind of nipped uh at his backside actually got him right on the cheek and he had to go to the hospital get some stitches wasn't like he mauled him so i i chalked that up as maybe the kids were roughhousing or whatever maybe the dog was playing and it just broke the skin you know it's not like he latched onto him and and didn't let go but i told him look don't go back down there don't don't mess with that dog months later the dog got loose got into my backyard and mauled my husky. I mean, messed him up bad. Well, I was obviously very pissed off about it, but I don't have a weapon that I can go out there and use. And plus I'm looked at, I'm being looked at. Everybody knows what's going on in the community. So I got to be careful about how I handle this. And the news gets wind of it. And so they reach out to me on Facebook and there's like, hey, you know, we heard about this. Can we come to your house and do a story? And I'm like, you can, but I don't want to be involved in the story. I said, I wasn't even home. I said, my daughter was home. If you want to interview her, you know, you have my permission. By all means, go ahead. And so they come, they do the story, they put it out. 
somebody shares it in the community Facebook page uh, in, you know, the neighborhood that I live in. Well, somebody goes on there and they're like, you know, I'm not sure how, but I know that the girl they're interviewing is somehow related to the guy that shot his wife's boyfriend. And somebody's like, how do you know? And she said, well, I'm a public defender. She said he shot his wife's boyfriend, but claimed self-defense. And there's just no evidence to back that up. So he went and hired one of the best defense attorneys in Charleston to try to help get him off, but it doesn't look good. And I mean, just, just bashing me. And I'm just like, this is a fucking public defender from the County doing all this on a public forum that every neighbor has seen. And I'm just like, I can't believe this woman's doing this. And so, I mean, it that's just one of the many things that I had to deal with throughout all this. You know, people would look at you in the grocery store. They would, you know, cut glances. Hell, I didn't have trick-or-treaters come here for two years, you know, where everything was going on. It was like, fuck, don't go to that house. You know, I mean, nobody, the people that knew me were, they stood by me, most of them, you know, I put it like this. I never lost anybody that I ever needed. You know, the, the real ones stayed around, you know, the, the ones that I lost, I didn't need them in my life. The real ones stuck around. And, you know, a lot of people now that live here have recently moved here in the last few years. So not a lot of people know about it still. We've, we've never left. This is the same house we're still in. Um, and, you know, I, I, I'm sure we will move at some point. I'm definitely not moving until my son graduates. He's happy with where he's at. So we'll at least stay here until that's done. But, you know, in the meantime, man, I'm going to continue to to share the story and just to bring awareness that, you know, you can do everything the right way, but that don't mean you can't get caught up. And there's no doubt in my mind, Sean, I'm sure you would agree that had I not had the means to get a good lawyer, that there's a great possibility that I would have spent the rest of my natural life in prison. Well, Wade, you've gone and done it now because I often joke with people. They say, what's your ideal podcast guest? I say, a guy who just talks a few hours, I just sit there and say nothing. It's never been done before, but you've literally just talked for over two hours while I said nothing so thoroughly. Everyone's probably on the edge of the seat as much as I am listening to you. It's so breathtaking. There's so much detail. You're wondering what's going to happen all the way through it. Uh, I just commend you for your speaking skills, Wade, and your activism. Everyone must love your activism. So I do have a few uh, follow-up questions, but like I said, you, you, you've, you've told it so thoroughly. It's, you've, you've covered nearly everything there. Um, going back then, because questions were arising um, as you were telling it just somewhat. I didn't want to stop your flow. So the first one is then... When you split with your wife that first time, I mean, like, was it something that you both felt was coming or was it news to her? Was that really difficult to sit down and have that conversation? It was. Um, I think I knew it was coming. I think she probably expected it. Uh, again, I'll, I'll, you know, go on record. She didn't want it. Um, it was not her first choice for us to split up. But again, I think with the pressure from the job, with the pressure of, you know, my friend's suicide, and then we were constantly arguing about a, a lot of different things. In my mind, I felt it was the best thing that needed to happen at the time for us to get that break. Ideally, we would have had a break and then maybe got back together. But I, I'll take 110% responsibility for this. You know, I told her, I was like, look, it's, it's over. You know, I don't, we can't make it. We can't work. I can't deal with you. You can't deal with me. And it's not good for the kids if we kind of stay in this environment. So I think we both kind of knew it was a possibility. I was the one to initiate it. I was the one to put it in motion. Um, and, you know, I'll stand here today. 
and say that I was 100% wrong. It was one of those situations to where, you know, things might be bad, but you don't know what you have until it's gone. And I immediately knew that once we separated that I still loved her and I wanted to be with her. I'm not going to sit here and tell you that I knew for sure we could make it. Um, but I knew that there was still a great deal of me that loved her. Um, and even when she moved on, I had no doubt that she would move on and find somebody. I mean, my wife's a very attractive woman. I knew if she went out looking, she would find somebody. But again, I told her to do that. I told her it was okay. It's not like she went out and done it behind my back. Everything that she done, and I've heard a lot of people in some of the comments say, wow, this, you know, I blame her. I don't blame her at all. You know, she done what I told her to do. She was living her life. I was living mine. We both decided we were going to reconcile. And unfortunately, he was just an individual that couldn't handle that. I mean, you look at like Jennifer Lopez and, and Ben Affleck. They were together the years ago. They broke up. She just left Alex Rodriguez to go back to Ben Affleck. A-Rod didn't go try to beat down his door with a damn baseball bat. You know, you, you understand that people break up and people get back together. And, you know, unfortunately, this did happen as a result. But, you know, I don't blame her for anything. And a lot of this put in motion was, was my doing. How many kids did you have at the time? How old were they? And how hard was it on them? It was it was hard on my daughter. She was a senior in high school. Like I said, this was only months before she was set to graduate. So she was around 18 at the time. My son, um, I want to say, was around five, five or six. And we shielded as much as we could from him. But as I said, the word was starting to be spread around the neighborhood. Parents would talk and then their kids would hear and then they would go to school and they would ask him, hey, I heard your dad shot somebody. And he still deals with that to this day. I mean, he told me now that was in elementary school. He's in middle school now. He told me this year that, you know, when they were everybody, new class, new school year, somebody's like, oh, ain't your dad the guy that shot somebody? So that's something that he's probably going to always have on the back of his mind. It doesn't bother him. He told him, he said, he said, yeah, but it was self-defense. So that's his response, you know, when people bring that up. Um, and we, I know it really did lie on him. I asked him, did he, you know, want to talk about it? Did he think he needed to get some counseling about it? Did it bother him in that manner? And he told me no. And for the most part, I don't think it did. I think it was it was so young. He, he was so young when it happened. Um, I don't know if he fully grasped the pressure. I, I hid the pressure that I was under from them. My daughter could tell. She was old enough where I couldn't hide it from her. But she was able to pull through. And like I said, in a weird way, this tragic incident really brought our family back closer together than it ever was before. So you found out then that this guy had been abusive to your wife, but you only found that out later, didn't you? Yeah. Um, I knew they were having problems. Uh, she had said that like he had pretended to have a job with the government, um, when he would leave and go places, but he would just leave and go places. That was just what he would ride around. He never actually had a job. He did have a job at one time, but he was fired from it. And so she, little by little, she started finding out things about this guy that wasn't a hundred percent true that didn't add up. And it just kind of started, you know, unraveling, basically. I mean, you know, as well as I do, when people get together, there's a honeymoon phase. Everything's perfect. You know, everything's honeymoon and bliss and stars and all that. But then once you start living with somebody and you're around, you start figuring out things about them. And I think she just quickly figured out that it wasn't, you know, the situation that she thought she was going into. And, and that was kind of where it was. So and I, and I didn't find out until we were in that meeting with the lawyer when she started telling the lawyer all that. I, she never told me that he was actually abusive. She told me that she had found out things that weren't true and that they were having issues, but never that she was abused. 
So here in the UK, they don't know what a CWP is. It's a concealed weapons permit. I know because I had one. I had to go all the classes and get the training and everything. And they teach you certain things. Uh, for example, if someone is about to kill you, there's no time for a warning shot, things like that. you got to kill them as efficiently as possible, two in the chest, one in the, one in the head, I think they told us. And... Um, it, within that close proximity to him then you said that because you look like a handy guy you look like you're in good shape you look like you could ha handle yourself physically but you're saying that it was the injury and this guy was a military trained guy he was physically what what i mean what kind of build what kind of height he's strength? a pretty he's a pretty big fella he was a tough customer he was a uh, six foot if not higher um like i said he was on steroids he was a pretty muscular guy uh he was he was definitely in better shape than i was at the time I, i'll give you that um you know and my mobility like i said was very limited i was walking very gingerly any quick movements one way or the other you know i would get this you know sharp shooting pain so I definitely didn't have the mobility to, to wrestle with this guy. I mean, had this taken place any other time other than this, you know, yeah, maybe I would have tried my hand and, and went around with him and seen where it went, given the situation that I couldn't move, that I was very limited in my mobility. And keep in mind, he didn't say, wait, I'm going to kick your ass or I'm going to do this. He said, I'm going to kill you. Like there was that skip straight to the real deal. You know, I think as men, sometimes we might say things. You might even text things. You might even say something in front of somebody, but when you put your hands on another man, then that's that's a different story. All bets are off. And I knew once he put his hands on me, just the look in his eye, the way he had me, I made up my mind then, like, one of us is not coming out of this kitchen, and I'm going to do my best to make sure it's, it's me that comes out. And in our CWP training, you're exactly right. They tell us, you know, they say if you can do a headshot, do it, but that aiming for a particular spot sometimes is difficult. So don't try to do a warning shot in the leg because you might miss the leg. You know, aim center mass, which is where all my shots were. Every one of them were center mass. I initially, like I said at the beginning, I thought there was only two shots. It turns out there was three. Every one of them were center mass. Then once he was down, you know, they teach you in the class. Once the threat is eliminated, you no longer have, an, you know, the ability to go up and defend yourself. So once he was on the floor, it's not like I could have walked up to him and put three more in his head, you know. Once they're eliminated, that's it. You can't do anything else once the threat's eliminated. And that's exactly what I did. Once he was down, you know, I called. I'd done everything by the book, by what they taught you in the CWP class. I was still, unfortunately, charged. And I've, I've come to find out, and you may be aware of it, there's actually insurances now that you can buy that protect you in this case and in these sorts of situations. One of them is, uh, I think, USAA. It was called Carry Guard at one point. But depending on the tier and you, how much you pay per month, they will help get you a bond. They will help get you a lawyer and they will help with your legal fees. So just say, for instance, and I don't know if these are exact figures, but just say 20, or $20 a month might get you, you know, 40,000 in coverage. So they'll pay your lawyer fees up to 40,000, you know, higher would obviously go higher with the fees. Um, if you're found not guilty, then you obviously don't, you get like a percentage up front. If you're found not guilty, then they pay the rest of it. Um, if you're found guilty, obviously they're not going to cover that. That would be up to you. But that's something that I, you know, it was explained to me when I first got it. Never thought I would need it. You know, now I think differently. And it's something that I think a lot of people should consider. You know, if you're going to have a weapon, it's not a bad thing to have, man, because that's that's what it took my whole retirement to help keep me out of jail and, 
and protect myself when all this happened. And had I had that, you know, it would have it would have helped out tremendously. So obviously, you credit the weapon with saving your life and the action you took, which was by the book. Do you ever play over in your head what might have happened if you hadn't had the weapon? Oh, definitely. Um, if I hadn't had the weapon, I don't think I would be here. Um, and I've, I've played it over too, you know, had he gotten the better of me in that situation, had he gotten me and taken me out, then he's a hundred percent invested. Right. So what's going to stop him from that point of going back to that other house, taking out my wife, taking out my son, taking out my daughter, you know, and then maybe taking himself out. How many times do we see that where people flip out, they lose it, they kill everybody around them and then do their stuff. It's murder, suicide. You know, it happens all the time. So had he taken me out on everything that he was on, on all the, the alcohol, three times the legal limit, you know, on the pills, on the steroids, he could have very easily went and done that. And so that's one thing that I've had to play over in my mind. I've never looked at this as I killed somebody. I've looked at this as I protected myself from someone that was trying to kill me. And then there's no telling how many other lives that I saved because had he got the better of me, it's very plausible. He could have went over there and, you know, they wouldn't have known what happened. They wouldn't have known, you know, he could have come right in there and just one by one executed every one of them and then took himself out. And, you know, you'd have been burying five people instead of one. So when my SWAT team came and pulled all those guns on me, my adrenaline was going for days after what happened with you, you know, actually firing a gun, seeing the person die, how long was your adrenaline going for? And what was the PTSD, nightmares, stuff like that from that? There was definitely nightmares. Um, the adrenaline, like I said, I didn't sleep none that first day. And it really never dropped, man, to be honest, because like it's not like you get arrested and you're put in a cell and you slowly have to start progressing everything. Like mine was one thing after the other. I had the shooting. Then I thought I was going to jail. Then I was told I wasn't, you know, so then it was kind of like I was going back down. Then I found out I was being charged and I had to turn myself in. So then it's back up again. You know, then I find out it gets pushed out a couple of days. So it kind of goes back down. Then I turn myself in. So then it goes back up. Then I'm in jail. I mean, it was like a roller coaster of emotions. And I bet you in that whole week, man, it happened Sunday morning. I turned myself in the following Sunday. So in those seven days, I, I'm not kidding you. I'd be lucky if I got four or five hours of sleep through all those days. I mean, you know, take cat naps here and there, but your adrenaline, like you said, is so high. I'd fired a gun before, of course. You know, you have to fire when you take those courses, but never shooting a person, never, you know, up until that point, I've been fortunate enough in my life to not see a lot of people die. You know, the suicide that I mentioned was a very, you know, gruesome thing to have to watch. But other than that, I'd never seen anything quite like that, at least nothing that I knew I was responsible for, you know, whether it was self-defense or not. To be involved in something like that, it was another level. And you're absolutely right, man. Nightmares. Um, you know, I've come to terms with it. It did. To, I, to, I went to counseling myself to try to help out with some of that. And there's definitely PTSD. You know, certain things will, will trigger it. Somebody might say a certain thing that maybe he said in conversation that night. Every every bit of conversation we has is like it's ingrained in my mind. So if someone says a phrase or something he said, if anybody ever wants to do that hug, they you know they do that same shit here. Like bring it in. I'm, I don't do that. I mean, like it's just certain things are just triggers that just set it off, and I have to kind of just squint my eyes and turn away and walk or walk away or start talking about something different because there's a lot of triggers, and in you know especially living in the same house is not always easy. You know, I remember. 
I was here, I was on house arrest and my, my wife and kids left to go home to see her parents. I think it was on mother's day and I couldn't go. I had to stay home and, you know, being in the house at nighttime, it's a two story house. It's not exactly the, you know, the most pleasant feeling and you're in the same area that this kind of stuff happens. So it, it was a lot to deal with. I mean, mentally I'm kind of cope starting to cope with it now. I think it just, it was such a roller coaster ride from start to finish, even though you had pauses in the middle it's like I'm finally now being able to kind of step out of the the shadow that this thing has kept me in for all these years and be able to kind of share the, the story. So I was on census for 26 months. It's called Remand in the UK. And the food, the cockroaches, the violence, the gangs, none of that compared to the uncertainty of not knowing what was going to happen to you. You were facing 25 to life for five years that is torture. Have you had like counseling or anything for that? Yeah, I went to counseling for it. I mean, that was a lot too in the beginning. Um, but yeah, there's there's no way to describe it. It's like going to the doctor and they're testing you if you got, you know, terminal cancer. And then they're saying, you know, we'll get back to you. We'll let you know the results. You're expecting to hear the results, you know, a couple of days, maybe a week. I waited for almost five years. You know, it was it was like four months shy of being five years on the dot. And it was brutal. You know, like I explained earlier, you can't have a good you can't have a good feeling about anything. You know, whether a Christmas was great, damn, am I gonna be see the next one? You know, a birthday, am I gonna see the next one? It was every good feeling was immediately overshadowed by a bad one. So it doesn't even allow you a chance to enjoy life. Like even if you try to put yourself in the mindset of let me enjoy life while I got it, you know, possibly because you don't know what's going to happen. Even though I felt like the, all the evidence pointed to the truth, I was in a unique position where I didn't have to lie. I didn't cover anything up. I wasn't sitting here sweating if they were going to find out if I'd done this or that or the other. I told them the truth and the evidence backed that up. I was under the pressure of just making sure people seen that, like making sure the right people paid attention to that. And it was torture. I mean, it was, you know, it, it, my wife knew that I was up under a lot of stress, but I found my fuse being a lot shorter. You know, I used to be able to, you know, I had a high tolerance for a lot of stuff that would aggravate me. Um, now that tolerance is much lower. It can get a little, you know, traffic can set you off. You know, she tells me all the time, she's like, your fuse is so much shorter. And I tell him, like, you know, I don't want it to be. It's just everything that's happened has made me this way. And there's not a lot of things you can do about it. You know, it changes a person. And especially like you, if you're somebody like me, I never say I would. I had 100 percent faith in the justice system. But I never realized it could be something like that. And it's like people that you put your trust in something that you think is supposed to be there protection. At the end of the day, if it's beneficial to them, they're going to put you in jail. Because a prosecutor or solicitor is solicitors here as prosecutors other places. But, you know, that's their job is to put you in jail. And that's their job, too, is to get those public defenders to get you to sign those plea deals, because that's a conviction for them. That's why when you hear them say, oh, I got a 98 percent conviction rate. Yeah, because most of the people you put in jail can't afford a lawyer. So they take a deal. So that's a guaranteed conviction. And those are the things that I'd already told my lawyer. I was, he said, you know, I have to notify you if they offer any sort of plea deal. And he was surprised that they went straight with the murder because he was like, they could have went down, but he was like, you know, they, they went straight to the murder. He was expecting them to come back and maybe even go with something of like, you know, manslaughter and due time served. 
that way there's a there's a carrot there of time served. You don't have to worry about any jail time as long as you plead guilty. And I told him, I said, I'm not doing it. I said, I don't care what it, what they offer. If it's not case dismissed, I'm not taking it. We're not doing it. And if you find 12 people from South Carolina that will say that I did wrong and decide to put me away, then I guess I'll have to go away. But I was told him I was not taking a plea deal. I didn't care what it was, what they offered me. No jail time, time served. I was like, I wouldn't. I wouldn't even plead to discharging a firearm. Like I wanted case dropped. Yeah, I saw innocent people sign plea bargains just to get out, and I saw one innocent person. They said, "We'll let you out tomorrow," and he had faith in the justice system. He refused to sign, and he got thirty-four years. But to go back to your anticipation anxiety, because I'm fascinated by this, you had extreme anticipation anxiety for five years. Did that energy transfer? to your kids and wife? I think it more to my wife um, because her and I were alone a lot more. So she, she saw me at more of my vulnerable times. Um, you know, I learned to, to cope the best way I could. One of the ways with my son, as I mentioned earlier, I was out allowed to go to some of his sporting events. So instead of just going and sitting and watching him practice and watching these play these games, I became involved as a coach. So that took up a lot of time. You got practice four days a week, you know, and then you got games on Saturday. I learned that I had to devote myself to something to keep myself busy mentally and physically to keep from going insane because that's, that was the only way, you know, I could have for a while, you know, I was starting to drink heavily used to deal with it, but I knew if I kept that up, it was going to go to other stuff and it was going to be worse. So I decided to slack back off on that and just really fill my, my day with time and energy into something that mattered. So the, the sports was a lot of that. Um, I was able to dive into that. And like I said, I still coach, we would do season football. We would do seven on seven. Um, you know, I was really passionate about that. I still do that to this day. We, we just had a nationals tournament a couple months back and we went and the team that I was coached beat a, a team that was coached by a former NFL player, which was very cool. So that, even though I'd done that to help me, I still do it now because I enjoy it. Uh, the podcast was another thing that really helped because as I'm sure, you know, these things take up a lot of time, you know, the, the research and the editing. And if I have somebody on that, I'm not too keen on some of their information. I would go watch either a documentary or maybe other podcasts and I would take notes. And then you have the editing side of things and you have social media. So I think that was a key thing in helping me as well just making my time busy because my wife was really the only one that saw me when all that stopped, you know, when we go upstairs in the bedroom to, you know, it's just me and I would kind of like be alone with my thoughts. That's when my mind would really start to race. So it, it definitely affected her, but she was very understanding about it. She knew what I was going through. She knew I wasn't that person. She's like, you're, she said, I'm not mad at you for this in any way, but she said, you're not the guy that you were when we first met. And she said, nah, I hate that because you had such patience and you had, you were just very understanding. And now your fuse is just so short and it's not short, like in a mean way, it's just anything. You know, if, the, if the TV remote ain't working, you know, I'm ready to smash it over my knee now. Cause I'm just, uh, everything is just so amped up and I'm trying my best to let everything start to settle when it is, it's getting better. Now that everything is off of me, as far as that, and I say that in a sense, what they can come back and recharge me if they want to. Um, I don't see that as, you know, something that would happen because every bit of evidence they have now is what they had from day one. 
So it's not like nothing new is going to come to light. But even still, the fact that it's dismissed is not 100% in the clear. Somebody else could come back and recharge me, you know, next week if they wanted to. Um, like I said, the likelihood of that happening, I hope, is, is non-existent. But it's still like they couldn't even let it completely be done with. They still had to leave that little window open. But it, it's starting to gradually settle. And I'm starting to come out of that and kind of relax. Because, you know, when you're tense and you're worried about that, that just amplifies everything. So if something that pisses you off that normally wouldn't be a big deal, it's going to be a big deal because you're so amped up because your adrenaline's always pumping. And so I think to answer your question, that was the key just to keep myself busy, to keep my mind moving. Because whenever I stop where most people want to just sit back and relax and take a breath. When I done that, that's when my mind would start to, to go crazy and drive me insane. Yeah. And to anyone watching this, who's got, um, stress, rage, uh, her trigger. Um, what helped me when I got out of an extreme environment, because I was going through things, was uh, the f sports, the fitness classes, the martial arts, the yoga, the meditation, all that physical stuff really helped me calm down. So I, I would recommend that to people. My next question for you, Wade, is then, you know, as tragic and traumatic as this situation was, do you credit it with giving you life lessons and enabling you to mature as a person? Absolutely. Um, it's It's been eye-opening in, in many different ways. Like I mentioned earlier, you know, just the justice system alone has just changed my outlook on that. I don't tend to pass judgment on people, even if I've seen them get arrested. I remember vividly right after I got out, that was watching the news and they arrested this kid for shooting his father. And, you know, some of the comments on Facebook was like, oh, I hope they get him and oh, I hope he's arrested and I hope he's put under the jail. My thoughts was like, why did he shoot his father? You know, was his father beating on him? Was his father beating his mother? People are so quick to go off of a headline from a news story and not really get the facts of it. And that's something that I've really tried to, to make sure I do going forward and, and explain to my kids, like, just because somebody's accused of something, even if they're arrested, that doesn't mean they did it. You know, don't pass judgment. Wait till you get facts. How many times in the society have we done that? You know, we immediately pass judgment from a video or a clip, and then you find out more about it later that really wasn't the case. You know, I remember the the guy that was at one of the rallies, and the guy was, like, beating the drum in front of his face. Well, you only seen that guy, like, in the first clip just doing, like, a smirk. You never seen why he was doing that. It looked like he was in that guy's face. When in actuality, that guy was in his face beating a drum. He's lucky he didn't get popped in the face, to be quite honest with you. But everybody jumped to the conclusion that the kid was the bad guy when actually he, he was just standing there. He wasn't doing anything wrong. So you have to make sure you take all these things into account. And that's when I seen that kid's story come across. I'm like, you know, he could have been being molested by his father. His father could have been molesting his sister. He could have been beating his mother. I'm not saying any of that happened. I don't know. But those are possible scenarios. You don't just jump straight to, oh, the kid did it, put him in jail. And so it really has opened my eyes of how the justice system works and how, you know, you need to treat people because not everybody that gets arrested is, is you know, in the wrong. Does, are there some people that's arrested that should be arrested? Yeah, absolutely. The guy I was in jail with that set his sister on fire. He was right where he needed to be. He set his sister on fire. That's that's not an okay thing to do. But I guarantee you there's a lot of people sitting in jail right now at this very moment as me and you were talking that did not do it and just didn't have the legal recourse of a good lawyer to help them prove it. And that's the sad 
fact. And I've learned more as I've talked to some of these guys that have spent time in prison. Jeffrey Deskovic done 17 years. I think he's now an actual lawyer. He helped get Andre Brown out of prison. And he said the, I want to say the percentages was like, and this is just what they know about. This has been documented was like, I want to say he said 20 something percent of inmates could be innocent. And I'm just like, you know, you put that in perspective of an airplane. If somebody says, Sean, you know, you, we bought your airplane ticket, but by the way, 20% of airplanes crash. Are you going to feel very comfortable about getting on an airplane? You know, and when you, when you look at it like that, if you think of 20% of all the prisoners that could be innocent that are in, that's a lot. That's a staggering number, man. And it is just, it's crazy. Including on death row, you've touched on some very important points. So I'll, I don't want to go on a soapbox, but I'll try and be uh, brief. Um, yeah, we've from our interviews, we've learned that childhood trauma is one of the major, root, probably the major root causes crime. We've learned that the poorest people in society are preyed on by the justice system because they are human beings converted into commodities in warehouses for private prisons. $60,000 a year back when I was in it, £60,000 a year of taxpayers' money per person. So they go after the lowest hanging fruit, the easiest people to arrest, young people with drugs. Uh, drug possession was a big one at the height of the war on drugs. Yep. And people don't give a shit until their kid is calling them saying, I'm in a cell, I got busted with drugs. The guy's threatening to do something to me. You know, he's got a padlock in his sock. Can you get me the hell out of here? That's only when these families were, um, wake up to what's going on. But it's good because... It's a it's a product that so many people have been affected in America now. The justice system expanded to the point where everyone knows someone or has a friend or family member in prison. The the public have woke up and the you know certain laws have been reversed over there. But my next question for you is: Are you allowed to carry a gun anymore? Yes, um, I actually got all my guns back. Uh, the guns that I had earlier, the you know the other ones that I mentioned that I had possession of, I had to give all those up uh, as condition of my bond. So they were actually at my lawyer's office in his office uh, in a closet. And so when everything got dropped, he told me, he's like, he said, now come and get all your guns before I take them and sell them on eBay. So I had to go up there and get them all back. And I got to tell you, you know, I got them. I loaded them in the car. I took them home. I took them out and I had them sitting in my garage. And like, I was scared to touch it. Like I hadn't touched a gun in, you know, almost five years. It was just so surreal. And obviously, you know, as soon as you do, you remember the last time you touched a gun was, you know, when everything happens. So it's kind of like bringing stuff back and, and reliving it a little bit. I actually got the weapon back that I used. Um, the police department contacted my lawyer and told me that I could come retrieve all my belongings. So I went up there and I got back the computer they took. I'm not sure why they took the computer uh, to begin with. There was nothing on it. it was, at the time, it was brand new. I think I'd only had it like a couple weeks. And they took that. So I got that back. Of course, it's very outdated now. Um, they took my phone, uh, which I got back smashed and obliterated. There wasn't even nothing to save on that. Um, I took back my, or I got my clothes back and then they gave me the gun back. So I did get the gun that was used in the crime. I did get that back. Um, and my CWP has been reinstated, uh, because my record has now been expunged. It's off the record. So I was able to submit the paperwork to get that reinstated back. So I have my CWP back and I am allowed to conceal carry now. Is it a bit weird having that specific weapon back? Does it does it give you like um, make you relive it a bit? It uh, it did. Um, seeing that one, knowing that one, and that was my carry weapon, so it was the one I was most familiar with. It just it fit well to be the carry weapon. Um, and to be honest, I've switched. I still have it. I have it upstairs. 
but it's not one that I like carrying just because of, like you said, it just kind of relives things to it. I haven't even fired it since I got it back. I'm not even sure if it does fire. I'm sure they've probably done testing and everything on it. Um, you know, I'm going to keep it just to have as a, a memory to the point of a lesson, you know, that I had to learn. But as far as like being that being a gun I would carry, probably won't ever carry it again. When you didn't have your weapons, did you feel vulnerable? Very, uh, very vulnerable. And there was even some break-ins in my neighborhood. Uh, well, not not break-ins. I, I rephrase that. There was uh, some car thefts. Um, one lady's car had gotten stolen. A lot of people's cars would come up and, you know, people would try to open them up at nighttime. And these were people that knowing they were on camera and didn't care. And one actual individual's house did get broken into that was not far from mine. And so I called my lawyer and I'm just like, man, yeah, I'm just curious. Like, what am I supposed to do here? I don't have weapons. I don't necessarily live in what I would call a bad neighborhood, but obviously crime knows no boundaries when people are doing this stuff. And a lot of times they look for neighborhoods like this that don't really have a, a big police presence because they're not used to it. And I'm like, what am I supposed to do? You know, if somebody breaks into my house. He's like, unfortunately, man, that's, you know, that's how it is. They, they take your weapons and he's like, you know, you're allowed to have a baseball bat. He's like, you're allowed to have a machete for yard work. You know, those are things that you have to, to use as weapons. So that's what I, you know, I had a baseball bat in certain spots. I had, I did have a machete I kept in, in certain spots because those can be used as regular household items. But like, I couldn't even carry like a knife. Like I wasn't even allowed to carry that. So it does, it leaves you very vulnerable. If something was to happen, you know, you can't defend yourself. And I think that's an important part, you know, of our society today. And especially with where we're at, you know, you're not safe anywhere, really. You know, I wasn't even safe in my own home, but you know, with the, with the way the world is going, man, you have to, I mean, I understand some people are against guns and that's their, their decision. And, you know, if that's how they believe that's fine. But to me, I've always been under the impression I would rather have something and not need it than to need it and not have it. And yes, you're, you're hundred percent right. I was very, my wife was even worried that like, if we had a break in, how would we protect ourselves? You know, what are we going to do to, to, you know, combat them? Cause obviously they're probably going to break in with guns or, you know, something like that. So you're, you're powerless to go against that. Yeah. I think people in England, they don't comprehend how dangerous it is in America. The people with guns out there who yeah. are committing crimes, the murder rate. I think it's, it's a multiple of what it is in the UK. For example, we had Joey Torres, one of the co-founders of the 18th street gang out here um, last year. And cause there's no guns, no gun crime being reported. He was like, this is the first time I felt safe in my life. Yeah. So, yeah. I heard him say that. That was, that's crazy, <laughs> man. I mean, it, it, but it's, it's the truth. I mean, the, you know, and South Carolina is not as bad as some states. You know, L.A. is, I'm sure, high. Chicago is, is through the roof with their homicides. But, you know, some of the areas around here, North Charleston, is is getting very bad. And, you know, you, I mean, you see it now. People are even weary of going to church. People are coming in all sorts of places and, and doing things like this. So you can't feel safe at churches. Uh, I just set an interview up with a young lady that was at one of the concerts. If you remember back, I think it was 2017, the Las Vegas shooter that was in the Mandalay Bay. Um, you know, those people were at a concert and a concert and he's shooting from a top window. So there's really, there's nowhere safe you can go to now. I mean, you know, luckily, you know, they were able to find him and, and he, he actually killed himself. But I mean, I think he killed 58 people and injured like over 800. It was one of the worst mass shootings in, in history. And there's a documentary on it called 11 minutes. And I watched it and prepped for that interview. And I mean, it was quite staggering. All those people were there to have a good time. And then somebody's just opening fire from a, a high story window. And I mean, that could happen, you know, that could happen tomorrow. 
you know, if we're, if we're not careful. So I will always be one that will be pro gun to, to have, you know, in case something like that happens, because there's, there's been times where people with guns have been able to eliminate some of these people before they went on to do further damage. So I think guns used in the right way in the right hands. I mean, they, they can be a blessing for sure. Wade, one of the themes of your story is how prosecutors have absolute immunity. So there's no consequences for their lies and they'll just say and manipulate anything. In your case, you mentioned the solicitor, you know, completely changed the events, the distance between you and the guy, the blood, etc. Were there no consequences for any of the people that, that made up those things? No, um, that, that was actually the detective that uh, had changed the facts around. The solicitor, the first solicitor that we had, one of the only times that we did go back to court um, was for a, a bond reduction in the lieu of me being able to go to my son's sporting events. That's the only other time I saw a courtroom. And my lawyer had made a motion to get uh, this guy's military records. Now, the solicitor that was over it, he had the option to give it to him or he could make him pay to get him. It was up to him. And he was just, we were speaking like in the, in the courtroom area, not, we weren't actually in trial. We were just sitting in the seats and he's like, well, I'm not going to give it to you. You'll have to file a motion. And if we have to file a motion, then there's a fee involved and everything else. So he was making things harder than it, than it needed to be. Uh, luckily, like I said, he moved on to whatever office the new one moved in after that. Then she quickly left the third solicitor, which was the one that agreed to see us. Um, that in and of itself was a little rare. Uh, they typically don't do that. He kind of went out on a limb. So I do want to say that I appreciate that guy to have an open mind to take all this in. And I think he did so in a manner that he could tell that this probably wasn't the, the way this case should have went. But as far as that detective, um, I don't think anything's happened to her in the legal aspect. I do know that, um, in the department, it was widely known that she left that bullet behind. And she made a lot of dumb decisions in this case. She was demoted from a detective. I was her first murder case. She had just been promoted to detective. I was her first case. Not long after this case, she got demoted to, I believe it was like property crimes or something like that. Then she was actually demoted again. Now she is currently, last time I heard, she is a school resource officer at an elementary school. And I think a lot of that was tied into the mistakes that she made. But as far as anything as her being fired or, you know, found at fault for anything, no, you, you can't do anything to them. You know, they have that immunity. And that's not to say that, you know, maybe these demotions didn't have something to do with that. But still, as far as like being directly held responsible, you can't do anything to them. And that, that speaks to her level of ability to a cop. I would be scared to give her the, the responsibility of doing something at elementary school. She could probably frame somebody up over there. But. You know, it's just it's scary that people are given that sort of power over you that don't have the comprehension to do a thorough job. I talked to cops after the fact that I've told the story to and they all go, I would have never charged you. I was like, well, I wish the hell I'd had you instead of her. But those are how it goes. And at one point, she even actually tried to get a job uh, working security where my wife worked at. She knew my wife. She had been and talked to her before, and she tried to get a job at the facility where my wife worked at as security. And my wife Strange. was like, is this woman out of, her, out of her damn mind? Like, but yeah, that's where she's at now. And I actually seen her. Um, I didn't know it was her right offhand because I'd only seen her just those two times. I knew her name and I knew what she looked like then. But 
it was uh, the the case got dropped, you know, end of October, first of November. I was sitting with my son in a Buffalo Wild Wings watching the NCAA national championship game this past year with Georgia and TCU. And I seen this lady come in and I knew I knew her, but I couldn't really place her. And I'm sitting there in my mind. I'm like, God, this lady looks familiar. It never dawned on me it was her, but I knew I knew who it was. They sit down. Then a whole bunch of young kids come in with like these police things on their shirt. And I called my wife. I'm like, hey, what does this mean? Because she uh, had worked with people like that, trying to get them into different career fields. And it was people that were training to be police officers. And I said, that's the detective that charged me with all this. It was her and her husband down there. And I recognized, I told my son, I was like, I told him, I said, that's the lady that uh, charged me down there. And he was sitting there looking. And you could tell throughout the dinner or throughout the night, she was cutting her eyes down there at me and looking. So I think she knew who I was. I didn't say anything to her. But like every part of me wanted to stand up and tell those kids, like, if you're wanting to learn how to be a cop, you know, God bless you. I hope you're a good one. But you don't need to learn from that one because she don't know shit about it. But I didn't, I kept my mouth shut. I just figured it was best to go on and leave. But yeah, that was uh, seeing that person for the first time, like out and about in the street. That was, that was another thing. I I could feel that anger coming back out of everything that she put me through. Because I felt like if she'd have done her job right, none of the stuff should have happened in the first place. But, you know, hopefully she uh, gets demoted or just changed fields altogether. Because I don't think she has the ability to be an efficient cop. So you mentioned you did a podcast on Boys on the Tracks. I've written a book about that. I'd like to send it to you. It's called Clinton, Bush and CIA Conspiracies. Yes. And the pl- I detailed the plight of Linda Ives. You also mentioned Anthony Ruggiano. So he's agreed. I've got a book coming out in 2025 about people involved in murder situations. He's agreed to be in that. Nick Yaris is going to be in it as well. I'd like to include a chapter about your story in that if, if you're up for that. Absolutely, one hundred percent. And I love Anthony, man. He's a he's a great guy. He's got a fantastic story himself, and we've done a lot of things together and a lot of projects. We've had a number of, of mob guys on the show, uh, like yourself, and you know some of the stories that they spit out. Obviously, situations much different than mine. You know, I'm, I was in no way affiliated with a criminal lifestyle or criminal activity, but some of the stories that those guys have, you know, guys like him, Sammy the Bull, who you're very familiar with you know, the stories that they have are just so compelling and they're great guests to have because it's just, it's like you're listening to a real life story of like a Goodfellas or a casino or something play out. And, you know, shout out to Anthony Ruggiano for sure. He's a great guy. Yeah. Hell of a story straight out of like uh, the Godfather. And I've got a 90 minute documentary coming out with Sammy the Bull in August. I think they said it's coming out in America. So that's going to be um, something else. Oh, we yeah, got I'm tons of we got we got tons of guests as well, um, UK based people. If you're interested in in interviewing some people based out of the UK, I could arrange that for you. Absolutely, I have Michael Emmett on, um, and he had been on your show, and I talked to him. There was a, a story that he told about when he was in prison, and he gave his dad crack before he got married, and I guess he had forgot he told you that story, and he was like, he was just blown away that I knew that. And he was like, how did you know that? How did you, who told you that? And I told him, I said, I was, I was watching a podcast you did with Sean. He's like, Oh, Sean, I love Sean. But yeah, I had, I had him on. Um, uh, like I said, Ruggiano, I'm going to have Joey Torres on soon. I have Michael Thompson on. Michael is just a fantastic storyteller, man. Unbelievable experiences. That guy has, has lived through. It's, it's insane. The stories that he has, 
Matt Cox. I mean, another very polarizing individual. That guy's got stories for days, man. Yeah, I feel like he could just tell his story and it would take a week, if not longer. Like just all the stuff that he was involved in. You know, fantastic mm-hmm. storyteller. There was another guy from from London that's a hitman. He, he claimed to be a vacuum cleaner salesman. They charge him as a hitman. Um, is it Trey Lance? Have you ever interviewed him? I think no, that's his name. I don't know who that is. I have to get his name and send it to you. I, I, the full name escapes me right now. I have to get his name and uh, send it to you and see if you've ever uh, interviewed him. I just had him on the show. He done a lot of times. You'll uh, it, it's London hitman is what they usually tag him as mm. in the uh, show. But yeah, he was put in for a crime that. He said he didn't commit, and he'd done a lot of time. Kevin Lane. Kevin Lane, that's it. Okay, I don't know why yeah, I said Trey. we've Kevin had Lane. Kevin. Um, yeah. Okay, all right. Yeah, yeah, yeah I'm sorry yeah, about he's that. He's a good guy. Mix good up. guy. Yeah, he was a fantastic story. So, yeah, man, definitely. Any guests that you have that would like to come on and, and share their story. With that crime and entertainment, I mean, it just it's such a broad range that, you know, we can have anybody on to, to share their story. And I, I would love to have uh, any guests that you've had on, man. I'm sure it would fit well in our demographic. I'll send you some good ones. Is there anything you'd like to say in conclusion to the viewers? Uh, well, I mean, if you are interested in, obviously, some of the people that I've mentioned that I've had on my channel, you know, we are crime and entertainment. We're on YouTube. Um, also on all your audio platforms, Spotify, Apple, Google, Stitcher, for as long as that's going to be on. I think I got word they're actually shutting down uh, end of August, so Stitcher's going to be coming to an end. But pretty much anywhere you get your audio podcast, you can find us on there, crime and entertainment. Also, all the socials, uh, Instagram is crime, the letter N, and entertainment. Facebook is crime and symbol entertainment and TikToks as well. So we try to put out at least one episode a week. Sometimes we put out more depending. I mean, I've still I've had to learn all this on the fly, man. I had no experience in podcasting or editing or or any of this stuff. So I've had to learn it on the fly. It's a lot of work, but I'm starting to kind of get the hang of it now, uh, you know, getting the algorithms and stuff figured out and it's. It's a challenge, but I enjoy it. And we put out at least one episode a week. All of them are very, I've got a, a lot saved up. And sometimes it gets kind of hard about which ones you want to put out first. Cause there's so many good stories that people just that need to hear. So, you know, I encourage people to go and like, and subscribe to my channel. If you think that would be something you would look into, we've got a lot of great stories on there. Some of the incarcerations that I've spoke about in here. And again, I want to say, you know, a thousand thank yous to you, my friend for having me on your program. Thousand thank yous back at you, Wade. I mean, your story is not only mesmerizing, it's got the icing of the cake of you carrying the torch to this day to expose what's going on in the system. And we commend you and salute you for your activism. So viewers, if you've been with us for the three hours and you've just listened to Wade's story, let us know in the comments what you think. I've been on, on the edge of my seat the whole time and you're definitely up there man in the top all-time storytellers like i said you've you've set the record i didn't speak for two hours ike david ike went for about 45 minutes i think john wedge went for quite a while but two plus hours that's that's the all-time record so i'm really impressed with that anyway thanks man yeah much love and respect if if there's anything we could do for you you just let us know well absolutely and i'd love to have you on my show as well to tell your story definitely thank you Thank you. Appreciate it.